my name is Dave Hanratty and there will be no encore. Welcome to the music podcast of uh, proper renown. I don't know. You know, like, what is it? What is it? It's a great podcast, Dave. Thanks, man. Uh, that's Sonic Architect Adam, who it just so happens is my guest this week. I've been waiting in the wings for three years. Is it that long? Three whole years. Now, you know, I know what you're thinking, listener. They've ran out of guests already. It's over. They'll never have anyone else on the show. <laughs> it's just two guys in a bunker and it's their last days. That's it. That's not the case. Uh, you came to me a while ago and said, I would like to be a guest on the show. I did. I did. Um, and I was like, but you're on the show every week, Adam. <laughs> but in a very different capacity. Um, so I'm double jobbing today, technically. But yeah, I did. I had an idea. And um, you str- strangleholded me into the title, I think. Did I? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. I, I, we came I, up with it together. I think. No, no. So what we're doing top five. You said you, you came to me with two ideas, and I one did. one was top five music producers. One was top five music producers. The correct. other one we'll keep a secret because you have another good idea in the back pocket. I think so. And we'll do that down the line. Yes. So Adam had it on top five. You know, jealous as you, envious, looking on at all these people coming in with their top fives. Adam was like, "I'm not having that. I want to get in there, make it happen." And I was like, "No." <laughs> And then I was like, yeah. You're like, yeah, you can in so, September. This was in July. <laughs> I'm surprised it happened, actually. Because um, we do have the show booked up for the next little while. And we managed to get you in, you know. Yeah. Like I say, don't worry. Other guests are coming. <laughs> Which is not to piss on Adam. Adam's going to be great, guys. Because uh, this is a topic, of course, that he is intimately familiar with. It's top five music producers. But as you can see in the title, and as was my stipulation, it's top five music producers not named Rick Rubin. Yes, and I will jump in quickly and say, I think... We were both very much on the same page with that title um, because kind of a gimme, right? Well, this is the thing. Uh, Any first time listeners to the show, if you're here now, welcome and hey, hey, good to have you. Um, Adam is a big fan, to say the least, of Rick Rubin. There's a framed photograph of him in the studio. Yes. There's a Rick Rubik's Cube that someone made for you for Christmas. Which I was gifted by a listener of the show, Cahal Thank you very much. The most amazing Chris Kendall present. It's an incredible thing. It it did me like crazy. Damn you, (laughs) Cahal Damn you. You uh, you also used to post, um, you know, Instagram stories that were like quotes from Rick Rubin. And he did. got his book recently. I did. He is a, a guru for you, and he, he influences how you have adopted your own music production style, I would suggest. Yeah, I think so. You even have a beard. I, yeah, I'm slowly metaforming into him. Um, but no, I think you're right. I think he is very much a, um, I suppose, a shining beacon of what I would like my career to be and what I think my strong points are when it comes to production. Um, and that being... I suppose the way he extracts the song, he doesn't necessarily have as much of a hands-on approach as some producers might. Um, I will get into it all a little bit later. Um, I have a a very comprehensive document prepared. But um, yeah, I think it was just a bit too much of a gimme. This was a challenge for me, but it it also kind of was nice because it was uh, an excuse to go back to maybe some producers who I hadn't necessarily spent a lot of time with recently, but would have more so in the past so yeah, I'm very much looking forward to getting into I've it. seen like a very sneak peek of your kind of proposal for this and yes. it was very professionally put together and there is kind of you know interesting kind of they sound like characters from a novel or something the way they've outlined it but we'll get to that later on in the show uh, and I should say as well this is kind of like when Michael Fry came in and talked to us about comedy music this is Adam curating so I don't have any selections but don't let that put you off I didn't want to get in the way that was the point yeah but we do have a new section so let's jump into that <laughs> Start spreading the news. 
And the big news this week, of course, is that Adam and I went on a date. We went to a, a rock concert. We went to the rock pop concert show. We did, yeah. I we went to the Button Factory last Saturday to see Enemies and their glorious, glorious return. You will, of course, be familiar with them from appearing on this show back in July. Let's remind ourselves what that episode sounded like, shall we? It was kind of post-second album. Um, you know, me and Louis were, were very, like balls to the wall like all in <laughs> on this thing um yeah bullish i'd say is probably is, is how i would describe yeah. it at the time I, well i can only really speak for myself but i was like a i was a genuine nightmare so like <laughs> i uh like like but from pretty much the very beginning of enemies i was a bit of a nightmare like i remember Oh, like I remember Mark getting a part-time job in a pizza place and he told me and I was really angry about it because <laughs> I was like, this is going to take away from us having like rehearsal time and not being able to play gigs. I was 18 years old. He was 18 years old. <laughs> he went to college. I was genuinely annoyed about him, fu- like, you know, helping his own future. I was like, well, that's going to get in the way of playing shows. This is like reverse father, you know, where yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, like no. these, these are supposed to be the proud moments. Oh, I didn't want anyone in the band to have a life. Like That was two months ago. That's from our episode, Enemies Rise, Fall and Rebirth. Go back and check it out if you haven't heard it for whatever reason. It's a really, really good one. And that was Mark O'Brien and Louis Jackson of the band Enemies chatting to us. They were in good spirits there, but they were in terrific spirits, I would say. In the Button Factory last Saturday night. Uh, I w- in a word, Adam, I would say triumphant. Yeah, I think that's about right. Um, it felt like a quite... Um, like I, I don't know, there was like a an element of nostalgia in the room that I... I suppose I could like feel, but I, I because I came to enemies later, I didn't necessarily have that same nostalgia, but I still felt it. Does it make sense? I don't know. Probably not. In a way. But yeah, I, I was very, very glad to be there. Um, it was, I would say up there with one of the better gigs I've been at. Um, the lights were fantastic. It was Keen Finley on lights. Amazing. You pointed this out to me in advance. We were looking down, uh, from the, from, from betwixt the balcony at one point and you said, that's that guy on lights. Mm-hmm. What's yeah. his name again? Keen Finley. And uh, as approved, it was quite the light show. An amazing light show. He's just like so on it. Um, he also lit um, the Overhead the Albatross gig in uh-huh. the Rotten Cellar that we were at as Interesting well. Interesting contrast because I mean I think you know like if I was to look at Overhead and like some other kind of post-rock bands of that nature there's a kind of a serrated searing aggressive edge to some of those in, in a great beautiful way. I think with Enemies you know it's there's such a jubilation to what they do uh, which was very much present in not just the music but the guys on stage. Uh, I was saying to Mark O'Brien uh, the next day I was like I've never seen a man smile so much. Yeah him and Lewis were really Really feeling it. Yeah, you could see Oshin a couple of times as well. Really Quinn, when he smile. came on for his cameo, like it was, it was, it was evident across the board. But I mean, I think enemies. If I was to kind of characterize them any further, I would say that they're kind of the glass half full of their chosen kind of field. It's oh yeah, incredibly very uplifting, positive. Yeah. very positive, very uplifting, very optimistic music. Uh, there is an edge in there, of course, as well. But like, it's just, it was very. It, it, the entire set just felt like it was ascending the entire time. Completely, and like you could really yeah. tell with. Like the crowd were so into it. They were so into it. People like, came from Thailand and Australia. Thailand, Australia. Um, there was a couple of other spots. Canada, I think, was another one mentioned. Like The hardcores. Yeah. like, And, and it just goes to show that the the reverence people have. For I came it. from my house 20 minutes <laughs> <Dublin>. away. <laughs> I was experiencing some horrific uh, dental-related trauma. Yeah, it was so. touch and goes whether you'd make it or not. I was in a very bad way, but I'm glad I went. It yeah. was really, really good. I'm um, glad you did too. Yeah, no, it was great. It was just like, I mean, look, slight bias, of course, because we're friends with the guys and we're very much supportive of them on their return jaunt, but I think it is great to have them back. And 
uh, it was weird as well because I, I know what you're talking about that sense of borrowed nostalgia yeah I very, have it as yeah. well because I didn't I, I saw enemies once in their heyday and it wasn't you know it was at a festival and they were put on like a shit stage uh, I didn't ca- I, it, I wasn't there at those classic gigs I wish I was but I felt like I was transported back in time for an hour and a half on Saturday it really took me into the space where uh, like that uh, it, in that same world where um, Kojak sold out the academy and I remember being on the balcony for that almost in like the exact same place we were for a bit um, in terms of like where you were seeing the stage and it's one of those things where you just like realise in the moment you're like this is an important gig yeah sounded great too yeah it sounded phenomenal Really great work all around. James Eager on sound, I believe. Yeah, really big and bright. And yeah, and also as well, like, I feel like the pay for like an hour and a half felt like half that. Oh yeah, it just like, it flew by, but at the same time, it was, you were really sucked into um, every note of every song, all the transitions, the change in time signatures. I'm really nerding out because like... That, that kind of band. That, yeah, and like, uh, again, you can you could really tell like people shouting the guitar lines and the, you know filling in the gaps with like the bits from the record and stuff and yeah it was just uh, it was a, a really really joyful really triumphant uh, gig like you say yeah and it's that thing as well where you know where I'm like oh smiles on faces like like I sound like I'm describing a fucking village fair but at the same time <laughs> there was a genuine like, I'm a cynic we know this but there was a genuine sense of something had been achieved and it was you know and again not a given, not a given that the comeback gig goes well, you know, like what if it was disaster? It wasn't, it was the complete yeah. opposite. It just felt perfect. It felt like, like so tightly put together. But also I imagine as well, just the fact that like a band reuniting, and I mean, like we, we spoke to the guys on their episode about the whole kind of situation around it. I think everyone who's coming back into a situation like that is probably going to approach it with a tentative nature or at least something in the back of their head saying, you know what, it might not go great but it seemed like it was the perfect it was the perfect thing to happen for enemies right now is to like get back in the studio and like or the rehearsal space rather and like make music together again and they all they all like they, you could tell the chemistry on stage was fantastic and they all loved what they were doing and they were all so appreciative mark was very forthcoming with that with his um with his crowd chat and yeah it was just really really great to see it Really great to be there. Really great to experience it all. Yeah, glad I went. Yeah, me too. Would go again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It right. was enjoyable. <laughs> it, that, that's what I wrote in my notes. <laughs> yeah. I, my headline is, we went to Enemies, and then the entire thing I read after was, it was enjoyable. Yeah. It was. And you're right too. But look, let's talk about something slightly less enjoyable. Um, well, I guess it depends on your taste. Ed Sheeran has a spark. I've written here, Ed Sheeran sparks privacy invasion fears. What does that mean? Um... He's revealed that he has recorded a live version of his upcoming album. That's right, he's got another album. Do you know that? Oh, do we need it? We only had one of it fucking three months ago. Fair play, fair play to him. Can you, remember, all I'd say. can you remember what the most recent album was called? No. So it's in, it, it's the whole Matt's thing? Is this, I don't know. <laughs> or, uh, multiply? I don't know. No, he had that no, already. No, that, that was one of the good ones. From no, back in the it day. wasn't great. The, uh, it was Subtract. Okay. It came out in, I think, June, possibly. Um, there was that Disney Plus documentary, which wasn't that bad. Yes, I haven't watched it yet. It's actually pretty good. Yeah, I know that's the point. Of your recommendation. It. It's propaganda, but it's well made. Propaganda. Hey, listen, propaganda. <laughs> You're drinking well the Dave, Propaganda. Yeah. Well done, Dave. Uh, he has another album coming. It's called Autumn Variations. Kind of sounds like a Niels Fromm album, doesn't it? It does. Or, yeah. or like an Oliver Arnold's piano, so like an instrumental piano album. Yeah, or like Max Richter or something. Yeah. Um, but he's he's revealed that he's recorded a live version of this album so we're getting a live album as well okay the content machine just never stops at the Sheeran household um, <laughs> at the Sheeran factory um, by surprising fans and performing in their houses now how would he surprise them and perform in their houses like that seems strange right so he essentially 
recorded them in a different fan's living room because I think he popped up on Zoom or something. Like it's just like the footage shared on his Instagram page saw him perform one of his older tracks in a fan's home, sitting at a piano in her room and breaking into a rendition of Wake Me Up taken from his debut album. Uh, we got to this girl's house and I instantly knew it was going to be a fun one. They had cats, friendship bracelets and some fruit drinks to start. But once I played the autumn song, I said, take me on a tour. And when I went into her room, I saw a piano. Only Ed Sheeran can get away with this, by the way, because he's actually genuinely wholesome. Yeah, yeah, of like, course. I'm not, I'm not worried, you know? Could you imagine Damon Albarn showing up to your gaff? It's very different. No, that'd be fine. <laughs> I'm, think, I'm thinking more from like a sinister perspective. She asked if I could play, and I said, not really, but I kind of play on Wake Me Up, he added. So here I am playing Wake Me Up for all the Plus fans out there. This is a very confusing story. A surprise visit to fans' homes. I don't know how I feel about it. Like, like I don't. I, I understand that it's Ed Sheeran, and you're going to open the door. Is it, just, is it a bit too much? It's kind of his thing, though. Even still, I don't know if you can, like, I don't know. I think, uh, yeah, I just don't, I don't subscribe to the model of going to someone's house and doing that. But again, like his whole, his whole shtick is that he's the boy next door. Fair enough. He's non-threatening. And yeah. He's yeah, cute, yeah. you know? Yeah. He's a nice fellow. Nice guy. He's a nice guy. Yeah. He's I, the nicest man. You've interviewed him? In India. I have not interviewed him, no. Okay. No, I haven't. Um, I would. I don't think you get much out of him, though. I don't know. I think he'd, he'd be pretty good. He doesn't... <sighs> in a chat. I think he'd be pretty open and forthcoming. He had that Rolling Stone one from last year, I think, where he gave out about critics or something, or was that this year? And that was slightly more, but he's generally very kind of short answers, doesn't give you much. And that's fine. Like, like I said, that's one of the reasons why the documentary is good. Because, because they, you get a bit more access. Because they had the access. Yeah, yeah. And like I say, that's like like that's all... Like You know, you know what journalists get pissed off about the most? Lack of access. Because you just want time. You know, yeah. some people want to star fuck and that's fine. But I kind of feel like, you know, if I want to interview, say, Westlife or Niall Horan or whoever, I've interviewed Niall Horan, but like it was it was 18 minutes in it as part of a junket and yeah. I got some good stuff out of him. But if it was like, if I'm interviewing someone like that, I'm like, let me do the Rolling Stone thing. Let me hang out with him for like two weeks. Yeah. Let's go to bars and stuff. Yeah. But it's just not going to happen unless you write for the Rolling Stone. Well, the, the Rolling Stone. The Rolling Stone. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, that was a genuine accident. <laughs> the yeah. Heathers, the Villagers, the Delorentos. Yeah, no, I, I I know what you mean. It's just like, um, you know, how are you meant to make, uh, I don't know, like a 4,000 word piece out of something that, you, you know, where 4,000 words aren't even spoken in 10 minutes. In 10 phone, minutes yeah. you know I, what I mean? I've like, been there, not, for, uh, not necessarily for, I've had people before where they've said fucking nothing and I've had to write like a 750,000 word piece or whatever and you're just like, that's, you can tell those though, like that's where you get the write around, you get the profile. Yeah. You're like, here's this, here's this, here's a couple of quotes. I think, just kind of going back to the, the, the article, like my other issue with this is kind of in the from the perspective of Ed Sheeran, in the sense of like, are you not putting yourself at massive risk here by doing what? Like just going to someone's you don't know. Who I'm sure they've communicated beforehand. There oh, must be some process, a vetting here. process. Of course, I'm sure I would can, like to think so. A member of management will absolutely have reached out and said, "Yo," although it is sold as a surprise. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe there's some kind of you know, do you want to like you know sign up for something? And then he shows up at your gaff. Yeah, and yeah, there could be all kinds of logistical concerns. Like no one's there. Uh, oh my god, imagine. <laughs> imagine he rings the doorbell and no one's home. An angry man answers. Or like you're out and you see it on your ring app. Yeah. You know, and it comes like Ed Sheeran outside your house in black and white. Do you have one of those? I do not. Those ring doorbell camera things. I do not have one. Yeah, they freak me out a bit. Yeah, not for me. Not for I have me. a normal doorbell. That's perfectly That'll fine. That'll do me fine. Old school. <laughs> yeah. So Sheeran, the, the new album is being produced by Aaron Dessner of The National. Of course it is. 
Of course it is. This is a new gig. He also, they put out an album there the other day. Another album. The National. Yeah, they surprise released an album there on Sunday. It's called Laugh Track. I'm sure it is a barrel of laughs. They're also playing the night before this podcast comes out and I won't be going. Yeah, I like I know. I used to be obsessed with the National and, th- and now I'm like, ah, oh, I can't even be bothered to listen to, to a National albums a year. I think they're very good. I, like, I think they're undoubtedly probably one of the best bands of our time and certainly the best, some of the best songwriting of our time. But for me, it's just way too dark. They've plateaued is the problem. I think that they have some incredible stuff, but it just hit a point where I was like, this just, it's kind of like the weekend. It was like, you've, you've said the best you're going to say, you yeah. know, and it's fine. That What's left, yeah. Like, yeah, like you, you, you've really distilled this perfectly already and everything else is just like a facsimile. They are great live though and I would go to the gig if I, you know, got a freebie but I couldn't even bother trying to get one so I'll catch them again. I've seen them before. Of course. But the album, the Ed Sheeran album produced by Aaron Dessner is said to be inspired by a 19th century orchestral work from composer Edward Elgar titled Enigma Variations. I'll give you a clue whose idea that was and you just said his name. <laughs> Not Ed Sheeran. Not Ed Sheeran. <laughs> okay. Not a chance was that Ed Sheeran's call. Let's talk about some other British rock royalty. The Rolling Stones. See, there you go. There that, you that's go. why. It, Phenomenal work. That's why I said the Rolling Stones. Yeah. <laughs> so the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger has shared his thoughts on the changing music landscape and the rise of streaming. Now, uh, I'll get to this because it's it's it feels like an AI wrote this or pretended to be Mick Jagger because it's the most basic shit ever. But uh, did you notice that they announced a new album? I didn't, no. Their first new material, I think, since 2009, possibly, or 2005. Um, the album's called Hackney Diamonds, and they put out a single. Okay, verdict. Called, it's called Angry. I played it on my phone in the background there when you were setting up and you didn't notice it. I hadn't a clue, no. Yeah, that was the Rolling Stones. Um, it's fine. Okay. They released a song in like 2011 called Doom and Gloom, which I quite liked, but like I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to the Rolling Stones for hot new music. Yeah, it's like again, like you said, with the, you know the national and the weekend. It's like, what have you? What's left? Um, you know what I mean? Well, like I, I, that's kind of it. I I have no grudges against a, a band that spans decades and wants to like continuously put out music. Absolutely, do it to your heart's content. You've earned the right to do that. What number of album do you think this new one is? Oh, like forty. Oh, twenty four. I was going to say 20 24. something. But they've had loads of, you know, live albums and other stuff. I have a live album on vinyl, actually. Probably Hot Rocks, is it the one it that everyone had? It is not. It's, um, oh, Gimme Shelter live at, oh, I don't even know. Did you see the late? From like the 70s. Did I you think. see the Late Late Show? The new Late Late Show? That I, may, I let me debuted ta- last Friday. Yeah, let me tell you, I turned on my TV so fast when I got a text from no other than Dave Hanratty. That's true. Oh, I did text you. You did? Yeah, I was giddy. Yeah. Um, I, and let me tell you, my day was ruined. <laughs> oh, I know why. Yeah, I'll get. To, yeah, we'll, we'll get to why. Yeah, last Friday, I threw on late, like you know, for journalistic reasons, yeah. just to see what. Yeah, I was curious. No, is my answer. I haven't actually seen it. Uh, I was curious. I was curious to see what would happen. You know, it's only the third time in in, in our lifetime, Adam, that a new host of the Irish National Institution Broadcaster Talk Show du jour. Uh, has got a new host. So, you know, I was like, how will Patrick Guilty do? Zeitgeist moment. It was a zeitgeist moment. And I, I threw it on with the intention of watching Clear and Present Danger. Had that fired up, right? <laughs> what, 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 a, what a Friday what a, night. What a neck-breaking right turn. I had a long week, you know. I was just like, I need to relax with some three-star Jack Ryan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> some US foreign policy. Um, and I was like, I'll watch the start of The Late Late Show just to see what it's like. And I watched the entire thing. 
Well, listen. Which isn't necessarily a ringing endorsement. I want to see where who would be. I don't on. know. I don't know. I don't think Tuberty would have that magnetism to hold to you hold for that me, long. Yeah, for two two hours. Well, they've they've cut the show down a little bit now. This is the late okay. late review of, of No Encore that you all that <laughs> yeah, you all wanted. Yeah. It's the deep dive. I thought Patrick Guilty was good. I thought Patrick Guilty was good. I thought, I thought they didn't do much favor with the bookings. I thought the guests could have been a bit more broad. It was still let's go into the RT canteen see who we can find. Yeah. And the music slot and the, he fucking queued it up and he was like, well, there's been a lot of talk about you know armchair republicanism. That's not what he said, but he was like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of talk about, you know, like um, traditional Irish music and should it be allowed and yada, yada. And you're like, oh, oh, oh smart booking, smart booking. They got the wolf tones. They got the fair enough. No, it was a bait and switch. And that's when I texted you because instead it was... It was Chasing Abbey, Dave. It was Chasing Abbey, a band that had been on the go for some time now. And, you know, Chasing Abbey in What's My Appeal. And they did their song, their big song that you sent me a link to a while ago. It is called Oh My Johnny. Yeah. And Oh My God. Yeah, you're not a fan. No. Um, like, I... I think what Chase and Abby did, like back in the day when they were kind of being flouted, I can't even remember the um the names of the song. Good thing, I think, was one of them. I think like they kind of had that nineties thing, and they were bringing back the M one sounds, the Korg M one sounds, and they were like doing all of that good stuff. Um, at a time when no one else really was, and now it's happening again, and they've decided to do that, but mix it with trad, and I don't think it works. No, I thought it was horrendous, and I tweeted out, music was a mistake, and then I deleted it, because I thought, you know what, I don't need the smoke. But I love how, you know, Rolling Stones talk, of course, naturally leads to Chase Nabby evaluation. Um, Back to the Rolling Stones, they put out a single, Angry, it's fine, it's not great, it's alright, but I will say, they're very smart men, or their marketing department's very, very smart. Do you know why? Tell me. Because they put Sidney Sweeney in the video. Fantastic. And let me tell you, effective. Like probably millions of views already, right? 15 million views? Already? It's at two weeks. Okay. Could oh, be no. better. Okay. Could, could be better. <laughs> For the Rolling Stones, I mean, like, you know, 15 million views. Hire Dave Hanready is your PR. I don't know. I just feel like, you know, if they were like, how do we stay in touch with the youth market? Let's get yeah. Sydney Sweeney and have her wear leather and writhe around in the video. Smart. Smart. Smart marketing. It's yeah. cosmetic business, guys. I mean, don't, don't get mad at me. But also, like, as, I mean, as an actor, you're, you're going to do that. If you get the offer, you're going to be like, yeah, fuck yeah. I'm, I'm sure she had a great time and was very, very well paid. I'm not yeah. criticizing the move. Neither am I. It was beneficial for both parties. 100%. Yeah. So Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger has said that, because um, he's talking about the new album coming out and being like, you know, oh, do we have a place anymore? That type of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Bands, longevity, et cetera. Um, he said, I'm not saying I'm slavishly trying to be all uh, be at the cutting edge of everything, but you have to understand how things work, you know, in the current world, said Mick Jagger. That doesn't just apply to the music industry. It applies to a lot of things. That is AI response 101. I mean, you know... The generality of that statement. Driving a car is a different experience than driving a car in 1960. <laughs> and the record business, I like all businesses. I'm sorry, the record business, like all businesses. Airbags weren't standard back then. It changes a lot. I mean, the record business being a business of technology, it never stays the same. It never stayed the same, ever. Albums by pop acts did not sell. What did sell was show albums like South Pacific, Frank Sinatra, my albums, then the Beatles came along and started selling pop albums and it was a huge change. And he said, while streaming is much maligned, the interesting thing is that people of all generations can access music from all periods. Did you know that? I did. I did. Um, as someone who can access music from all periods, I definitely knew that, yes. He said, uh, if I, before, if I wanted to buy an old blues record from 1955, that was really difficult. I had to do a mail order. I had to go into a specialist shop. <laughs> even though I had pl- uh, You mean a record shop, Mick? He said, I had to go into a special shop, even though I had plenty of money. You mean rough trade? Why is he like, bragging? <laughs> to go and buy it now, I can just... <sighs> there it is. It's right there. So what does that mean? Well, that means kids of 16 can access anything they want. What is he saying? Nothing. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely talking around himself in circles. Nothing. 
<laughs> Music is widely available. More at 11. <laughs> Fucking unbelievable. How many tracks are on the album, do you reckon? Uh, over 20? 12. Okay, not not far off your ideal. Includes features from Paul McCartney. Of course. Lady Gaga. Okay. Elton John. Okay, interesting. And Stevie Wonder. Great. They're bringing in all the big guns. And two of the tracks feature late drummer Charlie Watts. Oh, that's good. That's nice. It could be good. These are obviously things from the vault then, maybe. Uh, they're saying it's all original material. Well, that's good. But like, at least they're, you know, they, they're going back and like having a look at maybe what is their best stuff yeah, that perhaps, they've recorded right. in the last Like, it's fine. Like, it's fine. I mean, like if they aren't releasing an album, that's fine. You know, they'll tour one last time. Yeah. Like they're I said, still, they're like never going to die. They're like, you know, they're, 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 they're apart from Charlie Watts, Barrison Peace. Um, I think it's just, it's like one of those things, like I said, you know, they've earned the right to be able to put out as much music as they want. Whether I agree with that or not is another thing. Do you agree with uh, Blink-182 putting out a new album next month? I, yes, I do. Okay. Um, I want to see what it's like with Tom back. They keep saying it's the best album we've ever made. Well, that's far from the truth. I wish they would stop saying this. <laughs> they keep saying it. That has like tempered my expectations beyond belief. That is, it's too much. It's, it's don't say that and don't say it's the most personal album we've ever made. Imagine it is. I don't think it will be. Based on the snippet of the title track that's coming out, I think by the time this podcast comes out. Uh, One More Time is the name of the album. Okay. Uh, Tom I, DeLong, like, I like that. As an album title, that's fine. I think that's, that's good. That's totally fine. Tom DeLonge has said that he was considering ditching music altogether until he discovered that former Blink-182 bandmate Mark Hoppus had been diagnosed with cancer. Now, it should be noted at this point, of course, that Mark Hoppus is happily cancer-free. Yes. There was a scare. He went through a, you know, a battle with it, and thankfully, everyone's okay. Um, but they were talking, they put out a trailer for the album and, you know, there was just kind of like, you know, some kind of, some snippets and Tom's along said, I remember telling my wife, I don't think I'm ever going to play music again. I don't think I'm ever going to tour again until Mark told me he was sick. And then I was like, that's the only thing I want to do. Uh, of course they had had a bad falling out at one point during their career, formed rival bands. It was all very petty, you yeah. know, as these things can be. It's a, uh, it's a very full history Oh, massively, yeah. And, yeah. you know, the fans have had an interesting ride along with it. And I think for the most part, people are happy for, to have the guys back together. I do feel bad for Matt Skiba, though. He's rather been turfed to the side. It, but, like... Alkaline Trio, great but, band. It, oh, yeah, but, like, he, no no one said anything. Tom just came back. Yeah. And, like, that... It wasn't that the whole thing. We spoke about it on the on the show. There was some... I don't... Yeah, it felt like it was poorly handled... I could it, be wrong. I think it was, uh, by the sounds of things, it was tremendously poorly handled. It seems handled like he because thought he, he does, was there for Yeah, for he was life. just like, I haven't heard from them, but I don't know if I'm in the band or not. It happens more often than not in music, in fairness, but like, you know, give the guy a call. Um, DeLong continues, when he told me he was sick, uh, like, nothing matters after that, you know, which is true. Um, it wasn't about fame or money or how big Blink was. It was like, you're going to get through this shit and we're going to go dominate. <laughs> nice MMA language there at the I, end. I have to say, like, I have, I do respect that, like, Tom is kind of say, like saying all this because he could have just, he, he could have said nothing. Do you know what I mean? And, like, he could have just come back and... Taken the paycheck. Taken the paycheck and said, you know, F all, did the tours... Threw the middle finger up the crowd as 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 he wants, you know. Yeah, I mean, like when Mark Office was diagnosed, he did, you know, he was very quick to say, you know, like I'm with you, buddy. 
You know, yeah, because yeah. again, that is obviously, you know, oh, that, it's far more. Important these are the kind of things yeah, that yeah. you know mend fences, and you know, you realize how important things are, and you know, when you split from somebody, you you do miss them, but you maybe not be able to tell them, you might not be able to reach out for whatever reason, and oftentimes, nine times out of ten, it's wounded pride, and I speak from <laughs> I speak from a lot of experience there. Uh, it's the ego. It's just the fucking sense of like, no, 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 they should call me, but like, time is time is weird, and we don't have as much of it as we think we do, and it sucks. And in life, this is what happens: you you, you lose people. Um, um, so it's a nice story. It's a nice comeback. Yeah, and whatever do, happens, yeah, with a the nice album, reckoning for for the band. I think. Whatever happens with the album, like I hope it's good. I don't think it's going to be their best ever. <laughs> I really see this. This is like a really unpopular opinion I have. I really like Neighborhoods. I thought it was a really good record. It's, okay, I think it's arguably one of my favorite Blink One Eighty Two. I records. remember it having a really good three track opening run, and then it just kind of fell off. I will go back to it, but like I a lot of filler. I will say. Yeah, I mean, like, like the, they're an interesting band. I mean, they obviously have, you know, a checkered past and some of the stuff now then you're like, oh, has that aged well? Uh, and also, should they be, you know, at their age doing the shows the way that they do them? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I Like, that's a, like, we can have that conversation if and when they fucking come back because we missed They that. will, they will. Yeah, we missed that show because they had to cancel and thankfully everyone involved is okay. Travis and his wife, you know, Courtney Kardashian. Uh, but please reschedule soon, guys. Yeah. I really want to see the band play yeah. live. That um, would be great. I do love the band, though. I grew up with them. They were a big teenage band for me. And then I I love the self-titled album from 2003, as most people do as well. I think it probably is their masterpiece. I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's undeniable. They're capable of some genuinely great stuff. And they've given me and a lot of people over the years a lot to enjoy. And so this is a wholesome story. I That's one of the reasons why I'm very nervous about the album. Because they put you out don't, a single, you don't want it to like. Well, they put out a single a year ago, and it was just kind of like whatever, it was nothing. And then like the, the recent albums, even with Matt Skiba, like they just they were very unmemorable, you know. Yeah, they just weren't. I will say that was California was one of them, right? Was that yeah, the and then there was nine. I I remember California and being deeply unimpressed. It had like two or three okay songs, but it was just a bit standard. Like it was just standard yeah. issue. I mean, like you're also. Taking like you're taking in one third of a new band, yeah, which yeah. is like a lot. You know what I mean? And who it's knows? To, it's a lot to ask of Matt, Sky, Matt Skiba, Skiba to come in and like fill a gap that was entirely carved out in the shape of one person. You know what I mean? Big so, time, yeah, yeah. And there's so much history there, and so many kind of weird open wounds. But look, the the guys are back together. Let's wish them well. And what I will say as well, whether it's the Blink album or the Rolling Stones album or Ed Sheeran's new album. You know, you mentioned Aaron Dessner. Like, it is important who's behind the desk, Adam. That's what I'm saying. The yes. production is a huge, huge, huge part of any album, I would suggest. Yeah, yeah. I, and that's why... I think so. This week's Top 5 is... Uh, it's all about you. Because Adam, of course, is more than just my podcast engineer. More than just my best friend. <laughs> 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 a, a it was the delivery that was fantastic. A pal and a confidant, as the uh, Golden Girls theme tune would say. Yeah. Uh, and if you threw a party and invited everyone you knew... You would know that the greatest gift I can't even do it. <laughs> you would see uh, the greatest gift would be for me. And, okay, and uh, Card Attached would say, "Thank you for being a friend." Uh, what I would also say is, Adam's an incredible producer. Uh, I guess you know. Can you give us like a quick CV for anyone who just somehow just thinks that all you do is live in this cave of yours? Quick CV and right. press press record on a podcast every week. Um, he does so much more, guys. So I. Produced the Choice Prize nominated album All the Leaves Are Fallen by Nilo. I've produced the Choice Prize, co produced the Choice Prize nominated Song of the Year, Feel It by Bobby Arlo. Um, I co write and produce, uh, and co produce rather, a lot of 
stuff with uh, another producer called Alex O'Keefe. We do um, essentially all of Bobby Arlo's discography together. Um, you just put out an album with Rebel Phoenix? Rebel Phoenix Museum, yes. I executive produced that album. So more so than being involved in the making of the music itself, I more so kind of saw the creative aspect and the made vision, sure. Yeah, and I saw, saw it through to the end, also recorded it and mixed it. So yeah, and that's another thing I did. Like, I have an upcoming record with Melina Malone. Mm-hmm. Um, I've produced four songs on that. Um, I've produced work in the past for Tebby Rex, um, Bobby Basil of Deja Vu fame uh, from a long time back. That was kind of my first real entry into stuff. I've done co-writes with Steve Garrigan from Codeline. I've... Um, I've been very, very fortunate. Um, and I, you know, anyone who listens to the Before the Encore, plug, anyone who listens to the Before the Encore side of No Encore, it's a music industry podcast hosted by myself, will know my story because I seem to tell it in every fucking episode. <laughs> um, and you're also like, you know, like you're working on podcasts as well. Yes. You've worked with comedians, creating original songs. Like, Yes, like, like, I have done. I've done stuff for the uh, Bureau de Change song contest. Very in demand and, you know, quite successful. Yeah. Podcast but, jingles are another thing I do. Point I'm getting at here is man of many talents. And I guess, you know, the humble producer can be many things or maybe it could just be one thing. And that's what you're going to explain to all of us, including myself right now. You have a crash course. Yes, I do. So your top um, five producers not named Rick Rubin. Shall we, shall we get into Rick Rubin first? Because yeah, we got to mention the guy. I think I've got to do a bit of an overview first of all. Go for, for the for the I suppose the person who may not be versed in the music industry practice of the music produ- of music production. Um, so, what is a music producer? And the definition I got from Wikipedia, of course, the go to where else um, is a record producer is a music recording projects overall supervisor whose responsibilities can involve a range of creative and technical leadership roles. Typically, the job involves hands-on oversight of recording sessions, ensuring artists deliver acceptable performances, supervising the technical engineering of the record recording rather and coordinating the production team and process and I've underlined this because I think it's the most important part the producer's involvement in a musical project can vary in depth and scope um in a modern world the standalone producer is a rare commodity so generally producers now combine that role so the oversight role with um engineering meaning the physical capture um of the audio or the recording or songwriting and composition composition being the you know, creation of the music itself um, behind the lyrics. Regardless of era, I believe the producer to be of vital importance. Like, I think there's so many examples out there of records where the producer has been so imperative in the process. I do go into that a little bit. Um, But in particular, long form projects, like, you know, uh, to have someone to kind of keep the bus between the ditches, so to speak, is a massive asset to the artist creating that record. And I speak from being in both the position of the producer and the producee, if that makes sense. Um, having worked with uh, Philip McGee, he's an amazing producer from from Swords um, in Dublin. And back in the day when I was in my band, we stepped into the studio with him and I saw what it was really like to refine something down and for someone who had that ear and someone that you trusted to be able to tell you or give you constructive feedback in order for you to make more informed decisions is is and you know invaluable 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 uh invaluable role um so with that and particularly with the important part of 
the you know the definition, the Wikipedia definition, I've created a list of examples of producers in different categories. I like the uh, tone of voice there. So there was yeah, a, there was a, there, there was a switch there to a man. He's about to blow us all away with blow some, you all away with, some <laughs> with my bullet pointed list. Um, so, I the first one I have is the everyman. So we're talking like old guard who were able to fit into every category. Generally, these were people employed by the record companies back in the nineteen fifties and sixties. Um, but I suppose modern examples. I have Paul Epworth and Linda Perry as examples to kind of throw out there. Linda Perry is very famous for doing work with Pink, particularly. She also, sorry to cut you off immediately. Not at all. She is responsible for one of my most hated songs of all time. Okay, well, I'm sure she's got some good ones in there too. You know too. what song I'm talking about, don't you? Do I? You know what band she was in? Fucking What's Up by Four Non Blondes. Of course. That's Linda Perry. She co-wrote, uh, I think, most of the stuff for Four Non Blondes. I mean, that song, I appreciate it. It's a massive hit. Yeah. And it's one of those ones that will never go away. But it's Dave Leaves the Room if this comes on. <laughs> well, it's a good thing I didn't pick her in the list. <laughs> but, but she's getting an honourable mention. An honourable mention, as with Paul Epworth. Paul Epworth is um, a, a bit... Adele's a bit, guy for a while. Is he, he still? He's... He's a little bit of everything. Yeah. He does so much with so many people. He's worked with Jay Electronica, Adele, um, done stuff with Coldplay, Our Boys U2 on the our Songs Boys. of Innocence album. <laughs> our home our home heroes, U2. Um, and he's also, he releases stuff under his, under his own pseudonym and also does anonymous remixes. Um, and as kind of, was very famous as a remixer for a long time. Found his fame with Block Party um, with Silent Alarm, produced that record. Great album. Very good. Um, Sounds great. So that's kind of what we're you're looking at. You're looking at someone who can do everything. You're looking at someone who can compose, record, um, engineer, play, um, and give the constructive criticism that is required in a project. So that's what I would consider the everyman. Okay. Well, so before you give us your example of the everyman, because I assume that's how you've queued this up, have you? Like, no, it is not. Oh, good God. No. So I'm just kind of going through the categories first, and then I'll get into my list. Probably. Okay, yeah. I mean, if you want to keep it as, a, you know, go one by one, it's up to you. I'm not going to, no, I'm I not going to produce it, you, Adam. Personally, I have it structured differently. And I can, <laughs> okay. Uh, shut up. Personally, <laughs> personally, back off, Dave. <laughs> so I'm going to just follow my format because sure. I don't know how I'm going to get through listen, it. If that's listen, if I don't. put me in my place. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so next I have the high concept hands-off type. That's me. Who, who are we going for here? Of course, it's Rick Rubin. This guy just is a guy who sits in the room and kind of guides the project. Another, like, you know, another prime example would be Brian Eno. I think he's kind of been in that sphere of the person who comes into the room and guides the project, you know, the shining light in the room, so to speak. More of a thinker, less proficient with instrumentation, but lauded for their ability to translate ideas. And that's kind of what they're brought in for. So again, you're like, you're looking at Rick Rubin, you're looking at Brian Eno. Next, I have the uh, very pleasantly named the dictator. Not the not in the true sense of the word, of course, but often their touch dictates a certain sound. Can I guess like someone for this? And it might not be something you have, but you might like it may qualify. I want to yeah, because I don't think I'm good at this, but I want like would, yeah, no, go for it. I want I want to see. Would this apply to Steve Albini? This would apply to Steve Albini. Get the fuck in. This would apply to um, Butch Vig. I think is another good example, and I think this would apply. I think the, the the main example and the overarching example I'm going to give here is Phil Spector and his wall of sound because that's something that he coined and kind of ended up then imparting into most if not all of the projects that he did thereafter. So, and again, another example. And then, excuse me, then the tastemaker is another one. So it seems like every single song they touch turns to gold. Uh, Mark Ronson. 
Mark Ronson is a great example. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm good at this. Another one. Yeah, listen, you know, you're well versed. I feel like I'm producing a song right now. You've been listening to Before the Encore, it would seem. <laughs> um, so, look, I have to say, like, none of the above are binary exa- examples and producers span across these roles. Like, there's, there's flip flopping and there's blurred lines and. Huh. Did you mean? <laughs> no. Um, there's, like, there's, it would be a hilarious place to drop that in if it wasn't such a tainted, <laughs> toxic thing. Yeah. No. There's um. There's a lot of kind of moving to where it seems fit. Timberland does he apply to the Everton Touch Turn to Gold? A little bit. Yeah. 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 For a time, anyway. Yeah, definitely for like a certain period of time, he kind of had. Because you're saying tastemakers, so that to me is like like screams trendy, and there's a there's a shelf life. I think... People will get sick of this at a point. I think, Yeah, and I think I'm more so coming at it from the angle of maybe this is someone who is also held in the same esteem as an artist. Yeah. I think of like Metro Boomin yeah. as a but good example. But also the ones that we mentioned where it's like they are themselves household names. They are themselves the stars. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So look, from personal experience, what I feel to be a producer is to be entrusted with directing an artist's recording process in a way that emulates their vision in the end product. Therefore being a vessel more so for the artist to deliver their ideas through. A conduit, baby. A conduit. And yeah. as I'm sure you can agree, that can be done in an infinite number of ways. Like, there's no right or wrong way of doing it. And I think that's why the likes of Brian Eno and Rick Rubin sometimes get a bad rap and Corey Taylor, come across as Corey being Taylor a spoofer. Corey Taylor of course, infamously said that Rick Rubin did nothing on Volume 3, which just so happens to be their best album. Well, look, it, you know, speaking about Rick Rubin, like I'm gonna get into him as the kind of prime example of sure, like sure. the producer, particularly given his lore within the show. Um, but uh, Rick Rubin's career spanned decades across many different genres and artists. Uh, I've got a couple of examples here: Slayer, Johnny Cash, Beastie Boys, Kanye West, Justin Timberlake, The Strokes, Metallica, Adele, and that's as that's a selected discography. Oh, it's mattering, yeah, yeah. Like so, so many more. In fact, that Rick Rubin's production discography has its own Wikipedia page. It's insane. I, sure, I was on the, I was on like a news talk recently talking about his podcast, and yeah. I was like, "Who is Rick Rubin?" And I like, I had to stop at a certain point. I was like, "I could go on yeah. with names that you will know straight away." It's like you go from like you know the eighties into the early nineties, and there's fifty acts you've named that everybody knows. Um, look, no doubt different artists require a different production style for each record as well. And that's one thing that Rick Rubin can do very well. And that's why, you know, he's had, you go from Slayer to Adele to Kanye West to... He's on the Kesha album Ke- this year. Yeah, exactly. And it's a like, good album. And The Strokes, even their their comeback record was, I thought, fantastic. That's excellent, yeah. Um, so, you know, I think the results speak for themselves when it comes to Rick Rubin. Eight Grammy Awards across the vastly diverse artist pool means one thing in my opinion it's the formula works <laughs> so look he's famous for his hands off approach and he often displays what some may seem or what some may kind of uh, perceive as a hands like I, I don't know like a, an apathetic approach to the music I guess um, he's a vibes guy he is, it's, who shows it's up all once, vibes once a week with Rick Rubin to check it's, in it's all vibes um, you know there's the famous clip from 60 Minutes. I, I don't know anything about production. And I'm going to play that clip right now for anyone who does not know. But exactly what he does and how is difficult to describe. Do you play instruments? Barely. Do you know how to work a soundboard? No. I have no technical ability. And I know nothing about music. <laughs> you must know something. Well, I know what I like and what I don't like. And I'm, I'm decisive about what I like and what I don't like. So what are you being paid for? The 
confidence that I have in my taste and my ability to express what I feel has proven helpful for artists. I think that sums it up pretty well. Um, you know, he's kind of, he's very forthcoming with the fact that, you know, he's not an instruments guy. He's not going to be going in making the beats for all these rap records. He's not going to be playing the piano on the Adele song. He's not going to be doing these things. But like for him, like the feeling that kind of comes through him seems to translate to the mass audiences. He's like a director. Yeah, exactly. Even though he's called a producer. I, I think like the closest comparison you could probably get is a film director. Sure. You know, because it's like you're you're moving the pieces and trying to trying to get it to where it needs to be, trying to get the project to where it needs to be. And with that in mind, that's what I've gone for with the top five. I've yes. tried to like find people within that same world, despite how they may get there or what they might do. Yeah, just as a reminder, along with his many accolades, one more he can add to the list is that he is barred from this top five. He's barred but from, the, top from five. the show, Rick, if you're listening. We'll talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. The bro- we want the broken, re- not broken record. Tetragrammaton is his name. How would you feel if I interviewed him and you didn't? I would fucking hate that. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! That's I'd that- love it for you. Yeah, but no, deep inside, I would resent be, you forever. It'd be difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, it'd be tough. But like I said, um, it'd be like you with the uh, you know the Wesley Snipes meme where he's got the gun and <laughs> tears, the tears going down his face. Yeah. <laughs> Right, let's get into this thing. Okay, so... Um, I after suppose, 10 minutes of killing after it 10 off. Minutes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, to start it off, I don't think you can have a conversation about music producers without first mentioning this man. And I know you're not going to like it, but we have to talk. Let me take you down, because I'm going to strawberry fields. Absolute nonsense. Look, love them or hate them. I jest. I don't actually hate the Beatles. Yeah. It's, it's a long running gag. I just don't get it. And do you know what? Like, I think I was in that world until this week when I was doing research for oh the no. podcast. Oh no. But You're leaving me alone in this island. You, might, you, you might hear John Lennon. You might hear Paul McCartney. It's George Martin is the person that we're going to talk about now. George Martin being colloquially known as the fifth member of the Beatles, the fifth Beatle. Um, I don't necessarily think that the masterminds behind the Beatles are necessarily Paul McCartney and John Lennon. I think George Martin... See, that's a more controversial statement than me saying I don't get it. I think George Martin is the heartbeat. I think what he did... I think the songs definitely came from the two boys, but what happened afterwards, I think, you know, when they came to the studio, I think George Martin did something, there was something there that he did and he took what was already fantastic and just made it exponentially better. And he did that through a million and one different ways. Um, I'm going to get through that now in a minute, but 
I, I just think about all the musicians and artists you've ever heard that have cited the Beatles as an influence. You it's know? endless and it will never end. Yeah. A, yeah, exactly. And That's like, what endless means, Dave. What yeah. a day I'm having. <laughs> and George Martin is directly responsible for their success because he was the person who took their first studio session. Now, he did it as a favour. I'll get into that. Um, but he, he, was, he suggested that Pete Best be, rec- be replaced by Ringo Starr. I thought he was the fifth Beatle. Ringo Starr. Pete Best. Pete Best, technically. Technically, yes. But I think, you know, it's the four lads and... George. So, you know, he's an arranger, he's a composer, he was an A&R man, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go into a bullet pointed history briefly, just to give you a little, little bit of background. Go so, on, born, born on the 3rd of January, 1926 in London, learned piano as a child, which revealed that he had perfect pitch. Joined EMI Records in 1950 as an assistant to Oscar Price, head of Parlophone Records, then took over Parlophone Records in 1955 after um, Oscar Price retired at the age of 29. 29 years of age, Dave. To retire. The head of Parlophone. <laughs> um... He had to fight to keep Parlophone because artists and note were being moved from Colum- to, from there to Columbia or HMV. Yes, that HMV, his master's voice, which was a record label before it was a chain of shops. To all you millennials out there, right? Um, as time went on... Hey, wait, I'm a millennial. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> Me too. Yeah, what are you... What are you, what? I, don't you I, meant, don't I don't know. I don't know where that came you from. You meant Gen Z. I don't, yeah, exactly, Christ. yeah, yeah. As for you, you boomers. You Zoomers, As yeah. for you boomers, uh, <laughs> keep listening, this is for you. <laughs> But he managed to he managed to save the record label. He managed to save it through making comedy records. Actually, believe it or not, he did a lot of work with Spike Milligan um, back in the day, um, making stuff with him. So he was one of the big saving graces of Parlophone Records. So as time went on, he developed a close relationship with Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein is the manager of the Beatles, um, and he introduced. So, uh, sorry, excuse me, Epstein introduced. George Martin to the likes of Jerry and the Pacemakers and and the Beatles themselves. Jerry and the Pacemakers had the hit song You Never Walk Alone. Liverpool fans are going to know what I'm talking about. Any football fan is going to know what I'm talking about. And um Silla Black as well was one of the was one of the artists thrown in there. Do you know what Silla Black's real name is? I do not. Silla White. Phenomenal it's work true. from her. It's true. Phenomenal. Great pub trivia question. That's a very good pub trivia question. I'm going to take that to my next pub quiz. Invite me. I'm good at them. <laughs> in 1961, Epstein approached EMI looking for a contract for the Beatles, having failed to secure one at Decca Records. Playing the tape for Martin, he wasn't very impressed and referred to the tape as quote-unquote lousy, <laughs> but under pressure from the label was forced to sign them. Um, there was a lot of things happening there. Uh, there was like one of the label heads was like not very happy that George Martin was cheating on his wife with a secretary. You wouldn't uh, be, would you? Uh, uh, and just like... I don't know, it was like, you were signing these, or I'm telling, basically, I think was what the, was what the word of the day was. So the early sessions... Adultery was the word of the day, Adam. (laughs) Early early sessions. Though charmed by the Beatles' personalities, Martin was unimpressed with the musical repertoire from their first session. Um, The quote is, I didn't think the Beatles had a song, had any song of any worth. They gave me no evidence whatsoever that they could write hit material, he claimed. Um... He arranged for the Beatles to record a cover of Mitch Murray's How Do You Do It at a fourth September session with the Beatles now featuring Ringo Starr on drums. Again, he pushed that in that direction. Pete Best. Um, Turfed. <laughs> Pete Worst. Pete, 
Pete was it unfriended. I mean, like that, <laughs> that's a horrible thing to do, man. Yeah, not great, not great. It's, you don't like to see it, but it was very cutthroat back then. Still um, is, I'd imagine. The Beatles also recorded, or sorry, re-recorded "Love Me Do" and played an early version of "Please Please Me," which you heard "Love Me Do" in the intro. You also heard, sorry, I should say "Strawberry Fields Forever" and "The Walrus," um, all produced by George Martin. So "Please Please Me" became a massive success in 1963, predicted by Martin, and from then he said they simply never stood still. So there you go. That's how it all started, and that's how it took off. Yeah, I, I've no objection to you picking the the, the masterminds Fingali music producer for the Beatles. Like you kind of have to. Yeah, I, I've never. I've always said, like you know, like for my own misgivings with them, and they're not even misgivings. I've just never really took to them. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a it's it would be, it's a lot to get back into, right? Did Did you make that pun on purpose? No on fire today but what I'm saying is like I would never deny their influence that'd be fucking crazy yeah I and think, the sound even of the sound as well like I think he was like the proto-producer okay if that makes sense and like, like he was very much in the in the oldest sense of the word the producer that was like kind of employed by the record label to do the things but he also kind of took it upon himself to like do weird funky stuff with like tape loops and like he reversed the guitar solo on uh, on I think it was I am the walrus actually um he he without George Martin Dave the simple thing is we wouldn't have the hammer sound on Maxwell Silverhammer well, there you go you know because he was best very, producer ever as far he, as I'm concerned he was very into the whole kind of like foley sounds and like making sounds yeah and um that's cool yeah it's yeah Hollywood. There, there's like um there's an interesting clip i found about um about george martin it was john lennon speaking about kind of his process now there was some wanky bits at the start and the end where john lennon was like well i don't know what he contributed do you know if he Doesn't really did sound like but john lennon the, but then oh, there was a whole fucking thing with the two of them where like and and mccartney actually believe it or not but I thought this clip was really good and really telling of the involvement of George Martin. We both, George had done little of, uh, no rock and roll when we met him and we'd never been in a studio, so we did a lot of learning together. He had a very great musical knowledge and background, so he could translate for us and suggest a lot of things, which he did, you know, and he'd come up with amazing technical things like slowing down the piano and playing it slow and putting it on and, and things like that, you know, where we'd be saying, well, can we... Well, and they go, ooh, and, and ee, ee, and he'd say, well, look, chaps, I thought of this this afternoon. Last night I was thinking, I was talking to uh, whoever he was talking, and I came up with this, you know, and we'd say, oh, great, great, <laughs> I'll put it on here, you know. And like in Walrus, when we made it, we had, on the mix of Walrus, we have a live radio coming through, mm. you know. So whatever came through on the radio was like, now, if I just, I don't know where it came from, if I said, I want the radio on it, George would, make it so as I could mix and there well, the radio would be coming through the machines you know but he also come up with things like uh, well have you heard an oboe oh which one's that is this one yeah, that would be nice but, uh, well I just found so interesting and I didn't include it there because I think the context is uh, the context of taking that out was far more important but like he was just like well we did everything together it was like hmm I mean it sounds like George Martin was pretty important. Do you think producers in general can be undercredited for their work? Yes, absolutely, yeah. You would say that, wouldn't you? No, I do. I do. I see it all the time. Like you know, you look at let's just take credits, liner notes. Um I know Spotify are doing liner notes now. You look at a lot of stuff that's coming out that's like local and those credits are left blank and that's just not right. I think like if there's someone there who's helped you do it, like if the roles were reversed, 
you know, you'd be pissed off. Yeah, no. If, I mean, I'm, I'm working as an audio researcher now on podcasts. And I mean, like, you know, I get a, I get a shout out at the end. Yeah. And like, you know, that's, you know, obviously, no, like the getting paid to do a job is the first part. But like, yeah, it's credit where it is due. No matter what the role is, like, I just feel like, yeah, I agree. I'm, you know, but I, but I guess musicians might lay claim to more, you know what I mean? They might like. See, this is the thing. It's like, it's a funky industry. And like, again, I say there was a dispute between George Martin and, um, I was going to say Paul Lennon and John McCartney, John Lennon and Paul McCartney. It was over the fact that they were then saying he, after Revolver, I think it was particularly cited, um, that, from John Lennon, he's like, well, he was, you know, claiming more credit than he was due or than he actually did or whatever. I don't know. I don't agree. Yeah, he was a label guy. I mean, like, it, back then, it, they had the kind of bad guy thing. Like, George Martin was about, he was like fucking seven foot tall. And yeah. Like, you know, and he, you make him he, sound like and a, former army man as you, well. You can make him sound like a fixer, you know, from the label. Like, you know, you're there not just to mix this thing and make great sounds, but also look after everything and make sure it all flows and 100%. things get done on time and the guys show up and blah, 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 blah. And for George Martin, like there was a, like, yeah, there was a vested interest there, but there was a genuine connection with what he was doing with the Beatles. Yeah. Like, that's how that I think is the foundation for success in any record and this is coming from me as a producer if I don't have that if I don't have that with the artists how are how, like I feel like how's anybody I'm kind of looking at it from the lens of not how other people are going to hear it but like I feel like being if you're channeling it channeling it through me and I don't feel something. If you're not invested, how is anybody else going to feel it? But there are mercenaries, of course, and maybe we'll get to those. So that's so that, that that's your number five. That's the that every number five. That's the pick. everyman. That is the everyman. He is the everyman, and I think he's like again the proto producer. It's also a hell of a choice for the everyman to be like, here's the man responsible for the sound of the biggest band of all time. That, and not just that's not, not everyman behavior, Adam. <laughs> not just those. I will say there's a there's a couple of different bands he's worked with since, particularly since the 1960s. So Celine Dion, Kenny Rogers, Gary Brooker, Neil Sedaka. Uh, Jeff Beck, John Williams, Ultravox, UFO, Cheap Trick, um, America, another band. Of course, with no name, baby. Uh, but here's a fun fact for you, and this is, goes back to a recent top five. In 2010, uh, George Martin was the executive producer of the hard rock debut of Arms of the Sun. Do you know who they are? No, but it sounds like some kind of Tom Morello spinoff or something. All-Star Project featuring Rex Brown from Pantera. Oh, God. Can we move <laughs> away from Pantera chat, please? <laughs> we can. I've been lightly scolded by people since that episode. <laughs> Great episode, though. Thank you, Brian Lloyd. Thrash Metal last week. Go check it out. As for the next one, Adam, please. Okay, so I think, again, uh, another uh, one who kind of followed on and maybe there was a touch of crossover between Eris, but um, is responsible for the success of one of, you know, one of the artists who we are, again, all very much aware of is a household name, but also is very responsible for a, ch a sea change in black music.
Jones. Quincy Jones. Um, what you heard there was uh, Stomp by the Brothers Johnson. You heard Gimme the Night by George Benson. And you heard Thriller by Michael Little known Jackson. artist <laughs> Michael Jackson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what, is this, uh, what does Quincy fall under for your categories? I think he's another everyman, to be honest. So I, you're giving I, me another everyman? I'm giving you another everyman. I don't think I'm necessarily giving you one in each category. Okay. I think I'm giving you someone who, in the sense of Rick Rubin, can kind of reach across genres, can influence music in that same way and has that kind of similar success if not greater success I actually think Quincy Jones in a statistical standpoint is more successful than Rick Rubin but uh, Quincy Jones hard to have a conversation about producers without mentioning them Um, bit of a true definition of the word virtuoso I think Um, he's conducted arranged composed or produced for acts movies theatre since 1951 you know like it, and he's still alive and still working um, absolute it's, madman it's amazing did it's you watch a, that documentary I did and it's fantastic the Netflix documentary I'm referring to everybody it's uh, called Quincy yes in 2018 yeah a must watch directed by his daughter Rashida Jones Rashida right? Jones yeah who and, features uh, a little bit and Alan Hicks yeah she's in it yeah it's good I remember, I remember thinking it was good but slightly lacking I think it's I think it's a good insight into the history of a man who's like been you know, has had such an impact on music. I think, yeah, it's a bit broad. It does get into the weeds a little bit, but it's a, it gives a really good foundation as to where he kind of came from and how he kind of grew up in music and grew into the, you know, like I said, the virtuoso he, he so became. So again, quick fire, quick fire round. Born March 14th, 1933 in Chicago, Illinois. Moved in 1943 to Washington where he developed his skills as a trumpeter. So that was his first instrument at age 14, introduced himself to none other than Ray Charles, who he became lifelong friends with. Um, after that, it was, you know, again, like I said, it was lifelong friends. He famously had a song dedicated to him. Um, I think it was called My Forever Friend or something like that. Ray Charles played it for Quincy Jones. I, I think it was the inauguration of him for the Grammys Legend Award or like Legend of the Grammys or something. Anyway, I'll get more into that in a little while. Um, and he's since cited Ray Charles as an early inspiration for his music career. So, you know, you have Ray Charles to thank for Quincy Jones. So moved into what is now the Berkeley College of Music, which is like a very, very prestigious college in Boston. Generally, it's a jazz kind of, a bit of a jazzer. Do we know if the genus is jazz or... The genus is jazz, Okay, according to Brian Lloyd. Yeah, we've confirmed that fact. Yeah, I think that's very, very important. So um, he left... He left Berkeley early, actually, to um, to tour with the band leader Lionel Hampton, who played with Charlie Parker, Charles Mingus, Teddy Wilson, and Buddy Rich, all very, very famous jazzers in their own right. Jazzers, um, jazzers, yeah. Is that a term? Yeah, it is. That is how heavy it's raining outside. By the way, I was way, wondering listener. what that noise was. Yeah, yeah, it's it's rain on the skylight. I thought it was your chair. And <laughs> no, I was no, like, no. Because Adam is I obviously. I did see you taking your. Headphones. Because Adam's doing like multiple things this week, yes. I, and I was like, "Is he moving in that?" Because and also, I've got headphones on for the first time in the studio, maybe ever, so I can hear everything. And I was like, "What the fuck is that noise?" And that noise was not Quincy Jones. That was my favorite sound: rain on a rain on a window or on a roof. Yeah, it is. So right. if you're hearing it, listener, you know you're you're in the intimacy zone now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not a sad story. If it was, that would be excellent production on part of Mother Nature, but uh, unfortunately not. So, <laughs> Earth's greatest producer. Earth's greatest producer. <laughs> <laughs> oh god I suck uh, okay let's go back to Quincy Jones please okay so um, 
he yeah so that tour he 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 landed on there as a trumpeter and a ranger and a, and a pianist so he was he was doing all of those things um on tour with Lionel Hampton then he moved to New York City where he received freelance commissions writing arrangements for uh, for Ray Charles who was by then a close friend and for Sarah Vaughan Dina Washington Count Basie Duke Ellington again these are all you know in the the amount Rushmore yeah. of jazz musicians you know um Became musical director of French label Barclay Records in 1957 whilst living in France. This man has had a very well-travelled life. Um, then moving subsequently to Mercury um, after financial difficulties from a failed tour. And then he became vice president of Mercury Records in 1961. Composed the score for the movie The Pawn Broker in 1961. Don't know if you're familiar. I'm actually not. No. Okay, well, um, might be one to check out because it, after that... It was kind of game over from there. He was very, very highly sought after um, for film scores after that. Um, his door was being kicked down, I have written. <laughs> How's that game over? Well, not game over, it's game on, I suppose. Yeah, I was just it? like, what? I was yeah. like, what? You can we tell never, I'm not media we never, trained. We never heard from Quincy Jones again. <laughs> <laughs> And that's the end of the section. Yeah. So after that, he moved to LA, crossed the 1960s, worked as an arranger for Billy Eckstein, Ella Fitzgerald, Shirley, or Shirley Horn, Peggy Lee... Uh, Frank Sinatra, Sarah Vaughan, Dina Washington. Imagine being able to say this. Like, here's who I worked with, by the way. So his work with Sinatra, I have just uh, a couple of notes on his work with Sinatra and his work with Michael Jackson. So um, Quincy Jones first worked with Sinatra in 1958 when invited by Princess Grace to arrange a benefit concert at the Monaco Sporting Club. Happens to everyone. Of it's course. Definitely. Yeah, it's like, you know. Very little fees involved, I imagine. <laughs> uh, six years later, Sinatra hired him to arrange and conduct Sinatra's second album with Count Basie, It Might As Well Be Swing, which was released in 1964. Um, Quincy Jones conducted and arranged Sinatra's live album with the Basie band Sinatra at the Sands, released in 1966. Jones was also the arranger-conductor when Sinatra... Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin and Johnny Carson performed with the Basie Orchestra in June 1965. That's the Rat Pack for anyone who doesn't know. Um, in St. Louis, Missouri in a benefit for uh, Dismas House. The fundraiser was broadcast to movie theatres around the country and eventually released on VHS a rare commodity nowadays. Later that year, Jones was a ranger con- conductor when Sinatra and Basie appeared in the Hollywood Palace TV show on October 16, 1965. 19 years later, Sinatra and Jones teamed up for 1984's LA Is My Lady. So, um, a quote from Quincy Jones on Sinatra. Frank Sinatra took me to a whole new planet. I worked with him until he passed away in 98. He left me his ring. I never take it off. Now, when I go to Sicily, I don't need a passport. I just flash my ring. That's incredible. How cool is that? Like, And also, I've seen, in Sa- he actually did, he did an interview with, um, you know, GQ's Epic Conversation series? Oh, yeah, yeah. He did one with Khal- Khalid. Okay. Khalid? Khalid? One of them. Um, I don't know. Not DJ Khaled, the the really good singer, right? Okay, Khalid, I think is is how it's properly pronounced. But he did flash the ring in in that, and it is astounding. It's just phenomenal. Um, if you ever need, like, yeah, I'm sure if you ever need any kind of mafia related help, wouldn't Qu- be, Quincy Jones wouldn't be a problem. You ever seen him? He always wears like a scarf draped around his neck, and it's really long. He looks just very, very good. If at you looked all up times. opulent or luxurious in a dictionary, oh yeah, Quincy Jones, yeah, yeah. Even yeah. the name is cool. Yeah, it's 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 great. He had that interview a few years ago. Where did he have an insane interview a few years ago? I mean, probably. I'm gonna look this up while you keep going because I feel like there was an insane like headline making interview that like I wrote something about at the time. Let me. Just, I feel like it's not great. Let okay, me, <laughs> let, let me try and find it. All right, he is well, an older let's man. Let's go on to someone else who wasn't great. Michael Jackson. Um, while working on the film The Wiz, Michael Jackson asked Jones to recommend some producers for his upcoming solo album. Jones offered some names, but eventually offered to produce the record himself. Um, Jackson accepted and on the resulting record off the wall sold 20 million copies 
needless to say, I think that was a pretty good choice. Um, oh, I found it. Okay, talk to um, me. Yeah, my headline uh, for Joe that I wrote at the time was Legendary music producer says Ireland is, quote, so racist it's frightening. Well, I don't think he's necessarily wrong. To I be mean, fair. that aged well. Well, yeah, I mean, like, you know. And I mean, that genuinely did. Um, what did I say here? Oh, yeah, he also takes refuge in. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is actually, yeah. A lengthy instantational interview with GQ that he did at the time um, when he was 84. That was five years ago. How old is that? I man? think that could be the GQ conversations, is it? Uh, I think it was, no, it was just an interview with him. I think, okay. it was, I think it was a journalist. So, okay. and it was, yeah, so it was Quincy Jones has a story about that, is the name of the article from January 29, 2018. It's a great title, isn't it? And it's like, it's one of those ones where, like, you know, you scroll down your phone and you will be there for about half an hour at yeah. least. It's incredible. Your thumb cramps up. Yeah. It's a full on, like, life overview, but, like, yeah, just um, this thing I have here. So he recalled a moment when Bono invited him to the Vatican in 1999 to meet Pope John Paul II. What the fuck? Which led to Jones praising the late Pope on his quote pimp shoes. Uh, asked, oh, he was very, he was into Versace or Gucci. Was it Gucci? I presume so. Um, it, was, it was one or the other. He was very into it. Asked if the Pope overheard this potentially sacrilegious remark. Jones admits that he did before aiming a controversial sideswipe at Ireland and its citizens. You can tell I'm writing for an Irish website here. <laughs> Quote, when he died, I grabbed USA today. And Bono said, Quincy said he had some lovely loafers on. Bono's a great guy. I stay at his castle in Dublin because Ireland and Scotland are so racist it's frightening. Uh, he said trying Quincy to assimilate but it's not coming easy so I stay in his castle and the journalist didn't even say hey yo do you want to elaborate on that <laughs> like, just let it slide um, just let him talk and I've, I've I've round off this piece by saying other highlights from a truly fascinating chat include Jones buying drugs from Malcolm X having lunch with Nazi propaganda filmmaker Lenny Riefenstahl and how he's going to live until he's 110 years old I genuinely believe that last one someone said um, the, in the interview it goes did I hear they've said to you that you could live to 120 he goes 110 yeah 30 more years uh, are they pretty confident you can get there? He goes, oh yeah, hell yeah, nanotechnology and the genome breakthrough at Cal State. That's what the Nobel guys said it's going to do it. And then the journalist goes, do you have any doubts about that? And he said, no, 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 I feel like a child, man. I'm just starting. He's always kind of come across as very, you know, energetic, even in his old age, because like, he must be pushing, what is he pushing, 90 now? Uh, I'll look it up, you keep going. Um, so anyway, it's just another little bit on um, on Michael Jackson. The 20 million copies that sold, um, this made Jones the most powerful record producer in the industry at that time, quote from Wikipedia, um, but also I don't think it's untrue. So Jones and Jackson's next... He's 90, you are correct. Yeah, so Jones and Jackson's next collaboration was Thriller. 65 million copies. Highest selling album of all time. Pretty great. I mean, you can't really deny that. Um, so again, that was all kind of in combination with the, the rise of MTV and obviously that really famous music video. Um, but after that, uh, Jones worked on Jackson's album Bad, which sold 45 million copies. And that was the last time they worked with each other. First three records, three pretty good records. Not bad. Um, what I will say is there is a good clip I have of Quincy talking about the making of Thriller. I don't think of it like that. I think about what touches me. You know, I've never in my life ever done music for money or fame. Never and never will. Because God walks out of the room then. And it's not sacred anymore. And it is sacred, you know. Because to me, melody is God's voice. It's clothed by lyrics, but melody is God's voice. That's the power. But I always wonder, so when you did the playback for Billie Jean, or for any of the songs on there, was there a moment where you said to yourself, we've done something 
different, special No, year. but that was the whole plan in the beginning, man. You go through 800 songs to get nine, that's not casual. I think he's right. Like, can't follow the word he's saying. And I think, like, that's, again, that's the model I subscribe to. It's got, you got to feel it. Like, if you don't feel it, and you're stepping into a room with different priorities or expectations, I think it's very difficult to then try and sell that as something sincere. Definitely, yeah. Um, all right, so who, who you got next? Um, I will follow that on, but I just want to go through his accolades first. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, 28 Grammys for 80 nominations. Grammy Legend Award, he's one of 15 who has ever been awarded that. Um, two Academy Awards, and then I wrote more certifications than I could possibly count, because <laughs> I did try and count them. Unbelievable. He's multi-diamond, yeah. which is... Unbelievable. Again, like I said, highest selling album of all time. Um, then artists he's worked with across his career include Michael Jackson, Frank Sinatra, Brutus Johnson, Count Basie, Ray Charles, Dizzy Gillespie, Tony Bennett, Aretha Franklin, and Terrace Martin, actually, who has played on Kendrick Lamar records. Okay. But I also think the reason I, I, I've, I've kind of picked him there is because I think his influence spanning decades and like he's kind of influenced a different side of black music, but he was very, he was, he was a big activist at the time when there was um, like segregations and stuff happening in America and he was very, it was a very vocal opponent of that. And he spoke, uh, I, I, in my research, I was looking at some interviews, but he spoke about um, at a certain time, I think in, he was in Las Vegas and it was Count Basie and Count Basie's band was separated into a different room and stuff. And like they were playing, he was playing with Sinatra at the time. Like, and he was the kind of person who ended up breaking down that wall, excuse me, and ensuring that there was none of that happening in, in those kind of scenarios. Um, so yeah, just like a great guy, an incredible influence. Um, and again, I think just like one of the best producers of all time. But here's a bit of a change of pace mm-hmm. for my number three. I had a feeling something different was coming. And it, and it sounds a little bit like this. Dave? I've, I've got a feeling it, it might be Carl Martin Sandberg also known as Max Martin also known as Max Martin the Scan- father of pop music <laughs> Scandinavian legend yeah he gave birth to pop music <laughs> yeah. I mean you, you take any of those examples there and you're like yeah fair enough man I mean <laughs> yeah, let's move on it's outrageous <laughs> Number two. I, 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 they're all outrageous and I will say like you know even hearing like one more time uh, baby one more time but Britney Spears again there you're just like I think we take for granted just how good of a song that is because it's, it's just so incredible. ingrained as you know her pop culture moment or you know her breakthrough and it's tied to so many different things but just the sound of it i was like oh yeah like it does there's a certain 
There's a certain sound something in that. about it, isn't there? Like, it's go back to the George Martin thing. You're just like, there's something in there. I'm with the other ones too, for sure. But with that one in particular, I'm just like, it's different. It's and, different gravy. And this is what I mean when I say, like, when I said at the preamble, there's like people who span across those different roles, like the everyman, the dictator, the tastemaker. So what's he? Max Martin is a combination of every single one. <laughs> and like, I he's the inevitable. Yeah, he's the Thanos of yeah. <laughs> of the music industry. You can run. With a snap of his fingers, he's got a number one Run hit. from it. <laughs> I am inevitable. I am Max yeah. Martin. I swear to God. So, like, on my notes here, I've said, ever listen to the radio? <laughs> Chances are you've heard a Max Martin song. You should be a journalist. Um, like, this, I, I don't even know what I can say from about this guy. He had a vice grip on the charts in the early 2000s. He had 25 Billboard Hot 100 number ones. That's fucking insane. 25. <laughs> What is the secret? Like, I don't know. I don't know. I will get into, I, I, I will get into all of his like secret sauces and stuff like that. And then I have a couple of clips, but I, I will say his signature sound, as you probably know, is this stab, which I am going to input here. So yes, if you've heard that, you've heard a Max Martin song. Um, Quick fire round. Born in Stockholm, Sweden, was a student of Sweden's public music education scheme. And once said that he had public education to thank for everything. So there you go. Stay in school, kids. Yeah. Um, joined bands most success tunneling from a group called It's Alive, who ended Good name. Up, Good name. ended up being signed to Swedish producer Dennis Pop's label out of Chiron Studios, which Max Martin later ended up taking over. As Dennis Pop sadly died early from cancer, he died very young. He died at uh, 30, 30, 31 or something like that. It was re- he was really young. Um, Chiron Studios played host to acts like uh, Five. The amazing pop band who we all love. Keep oh, on yeah. moving, I say. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Robin, Ace of Bass, and our own boys, Westlife. You can't just sp- slide past Robin that quickly. Robin. Oh, she was like one of the products of that studio Incredible. at the time. Yeah, so like, again, the the pedigree is just fantastic in these places. Um, Sharon Studios unfortunately closed in the year 2000, um, which made way for the foundation of Max Martin's production company, Maritone and Cosmo Studios. He opened with uh, Tom Tamala in 2001. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, more acts he's written and produced for include, but are not limited to Usher, Pink, Katy Perry, The Weeknd, Ariana Grande, Taylor Swift, uh, Christina Aguilera, Coldplay, Bon Jovi, Ellie Goulding, Justin Timberlake, and Maneskin. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, like, again, it's nonstop. The ones, the Murderer's so, Row. The songs you heard in the in the intro there, Hit, me, Hit Baby One More Time by Britney Spears, I Want It That Way by NSYNC, and Can't Feel My Face, which uh, he... Do you want to try that again, Adam, do Which you? he wrote and co-produced. I Want It That Way by... And, oh, Backstreet Boys. Good oh, Lord. my God, I said NSYNC. Jesus, I they got are NSYNC back, on though. the brain. They have come back, so yeah, I understand why you got confused. Backstreet's are back. And NSYNC are apparently bringing out their first song in... What's the best NSYNC song? The best and sing song. I like it's gotta be me. The answer is Oh, it's the uh, Don't Go Break Up My Heart. Is that no, that's the Backstreet Boys going Tearing back. Up My Heart. Tearing Up My Heart. Yeah. Yeah. It's tearing up my heart. Yeah. Tune. Very, very good. <laughs> yeah. Although Don't Go Break My Heart by Backstreet Boys is great. It's all good, guys. What's the NSYNC song? What's the best NSYNC song? Tearing Up My Heart. Oh, amazing. Yeah. You're thinking of the Backstreet Boys. Don't go break my heart. That's the one. I'm You're having a nightmare. We're, we're, Excuse me. We're both having a nightmare right it's now. Bo- it's boy band soup. Max Martin has Max Martin has eroded our brains. Yeah. <laughs> his, with his, his pop music's culture, that good. With his pop culture sponge. 
Okay, so his number one hits. Do you want to hear them? Uh, yeah, sure. How many uh, are there? 25, there, is it? There's a lot. <laughs> um, Baby One More Time, Britney Spears, 1998. 2000, It's Gonna Be Me, and Sync. 2008, I Kissed a Girl, Katy Perry. 2008, Shit song, by the way. So What by Pink. 2009, Terrible Song. My Life Would Suck Without You by Kelly Clarkson. Awful. Three by Britney Spears, 2009. It's okay. California Girls, Katy Perry. No. Uh, featuring Snoop Dogg. 2010, Teenage Dream by Katy Perry. Uh, no. 2010, Raise Your Glass by Pink. Rubbish. You can hear, I can hear all of these songs playing at the exact same time in my head. It's killing me, yeah. Um, 2011, Hold It Against Me, Britney Spears. Uh, it's not great. 2011, E.T. by Katy Perry. That's a good Kanye one. West. That's a good one, and it's got a great Kanye. It's the Kanye. worst feature yeah, of yeah. All time. I love how bad the feature is, you know. <laughs> I got a dirty mind. <laughs> the Milky Way. It's rubbish. So yeah. bad. Found in. Um, 2011, Last Friday Night, TGIF by Katy Perry. I no. am not against that I'm song, sorry, like, I, to be fair. I feel like I'm, 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 te- I'm less respect for this man by the passing second here, but go on. But you can't deny the accolades. But these are all, these are all grossly of their time. That horrible... Oh, it gets better. Late 2000s, early, early 10s pop process pop. I didn't it like gets it. so much better. 2012, pardon me, Katy Perry. Uh, no. <laughs> 2012, One More Night by Maroon 5. No. 2012, We Are Never Ever Getting Back Together by Taylor Swift. Look, it does what it does. Yeah. Roar by Katy Perry, 2013. That's actually, I like that one. Dark Horse by Katy Perry, 2013, featuring Juicy J. I'm not mad about it, it's fine, I suppose. 2014, Shake It Off by Taylor Swift. I, I never really took to it. 2014, Blank Space by Taylor Swift. Better song. 2015, Bad Blood by Taylor Swift. Slightly. Featuring Kendrick uh, Lamar. Yeah, featuring Kendrick Lamar and going, uh, cashing that paycheck. You 2015, know? Can't Feel My Face by The Weeknd. I think. I loved it at the time. I think probably top three of his career. The songs? Yes. No, absolutely not. I think top three of his career. No, not a chance. Definitely. Top 20. Uh, 2016, Can't Stop the Feeling by Justin Timberlake. Oh. Uh, Guilty pleasure was, of mine. That was, a, that was a weird no encore <laughs> moment back in the studio, back in the day. 2019, Blinding Lights by The Weeknd. 20, uh, it is great, let's be fair. Yeah. 2021, Save Your Tears by The Weeknd and, and Ariana it's, Grande. It's, yeah, it's good. It's good. 2021, My Universe by Coldplay and BTS. Couldn't pick it out of the lineup. Neither could I. I don't think I've ever heard the song. Two years ago, I've heard it, but like, yeah, no. Um, so I've got a clip now, and it's a few of those artists talking about the process of working with Max Martin. I think working with Max in the studio for me is very relaxed, and um, you know, you everyone there cares about the song. You know, he's a songwriter and a producer. Um, it's like what he was born to do, and he's so good at it. <laughs> How do you create? Creating is a miracle, and he is one of the best creators I've ever met. He just, he just hears stuff. It makes you angry. Because we could listen to a track, and I'll hear something, and I automatically can't stand it, but I hear it, like that's what I hear. And then he comes out with something, and you're like, why can't I hear that? I wanna hear that first. Why can't that be the first thing I hear? You're a dick. <laughs> it's kinda like that. I don't know, there's something very natural about what he does in a, in a weird way. Like, I think that people probably criticize him for being too formulaic, but I think that people are completely wrong. I think it's so much more about um, just the simplest thing is the most effective because it impacts the listener the, 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 um, the most. And, and I, I, love, I learned so much from working with him for that reason, because I would always get really complicated, and he's, he kind of strips a lot of that away, and I think that's one of the coolest things about, about what he does. Max and I have worked together for a very long time, um, but he definitely has great energy. Um, he's a good person, a kind person, and I think he kind of um, sets the scene for it to be really creative. He 
he's happy to search for whatever you want, road you want to go down, um, songwriting wise. Um, and he's a friend and a listener, not just someone that is a, you know, titan of his industry. And obviously, we know Max um, has achieved so much in his life, so he could always be really forceful in the sessions. But he's actually there to learn something as well. So it's really just like a, a wonderful back and forth. It's a very, it's a volleying of the ball of sorts. Um, that was Justin Timberlake, Pink, Adam Levine, and Katy Perry, if you didn't recognize the voices, all singing Max Martin's praises. And like, I think, like, again, I think the stats speak for themselves. You can't not be good at what you do and have 25 Billboard Hot 100 number ones across, what, three decades? Incredible work. Truly, truly incredible work. Yeah, undeniable. Even if, like I say, that run of singles was... Uh, Not to your taste, shall we say? Alarming. Alar- <laughs> alarming. Alarming. Well, speaks more about the era, though, than the work, I think, or at least by the, the producer. But then, yeah, he's, he's, you know, he's guilty. Well, we're going to move into a bit of a different world now. Um, so away from that kind of Swedish pop um, dominance and into something that's a bit more, um, that was a late find for me, a bit more kind of of someone who maybe you might not expect in this list but um, someone I think, again, like Quincy Jones, but a bit more of a modern contemporary um, of him has influenced um, black music in a way that is completely undeniable. To see you cry, no baby, now. Most interesting music started at age two. <laughs> and, uh, at age two, Zilla uh, carried 45 on his arm and turned able to park it. It's been wrecked. This is in downtown Detroit. It was you that fed my appetite for seduction Biting and cussing, making love and uh, Touching when no one has ever touched before The heat got you open like an oven door Because of your innocence Even more you'll remember this hardcore gentleness Before you wasn't into this On the ride, your freak became limitless Holding on to the Ideas, Dave. Ah, come on, don't put me on the spot like this. <laughs> that was "Don't Cry," "So Far to Go," and "Didn't You Know." Uh, "So Far to Go" was um, a song featuring Common and D'Angelo. Uh, "Didn't You Know" was a song by Erica Badu, and the first song you heard, "Don't Cry," was a Jay Dilla original. Jay Dilla is who we're talking about. James, do it, Yancey. Um, again, I was. I think he was probably the first hard in in my in my producer's list for this episode. I will say, I mean, there's a million that I left out and I'll do so many honourable mentions at the end, but I do think we could probably get a part two out of this, so I don't want to be too, um, too forthcoming. Guy. Look at this guy pitching in real time. Um, so yeah, Jay Dilla. This is Jay Dilla. Um, for anyone who doesn't know who Jay Dilla is, Jay Dilla was, um, I think, one of the reinventors of the sampling um of the, I, I suppose the sampling bug in in hip hop music in the 90s um and was so highly sought after for his beats because he was a bit of a pioneer in terms of how he um how he approached sampling and the and his I suppose slightly abstract approach to it I I I did say that um in in my notes that I feel like it, the best way to describe him is an abstract painter with 
the Akai MPC 3000 as his <laughs> like as his canvas and the palette of colors being his vast record collection because he just sampled records and there's like pictures of him in a studio and it's wall to wall 12 inch LPs like wall to wall um he is very much lauded now as one of the greatest producers of all time particularly when it comes to hip hop and I think in listening to what you heard just there you can definitely hear the influence on particularly drum patterns and again sampling and the way he sampled was just so unique and he he really changed the face of what it was to make a hip hop instrumental so much so that he he attracted the attention of Q-Tip from a tribe called Quest after um he he was in or he had worked with someone in a funkadelic i think it was um Oh, I have it written down here. Bear with me. Amp Fiddler from Funkadelic, who was the keyboard player. Um, he'd worked with him and then he w- he was already kind of good pals with Q-Tip, Amp Fiddler. And um, he said, I got, I got to introduce you to this guy. And, um, you know, he's just like you. He really looks up to you. And like he ended up, the, you know, a Q-Tip got or met Dilla and the Slum Village guys, Slum Village being Jay Dilla's ensemble three-piece, which he actually rapped in that as well, and he was very good. Um, I'm a big fan. But uh, they, Q-Tip got the the tape and listened to it on the tour bus. And after that, it was, you know, it, it was in the studio. Uh, that kick, it kicked the door down. It was He was working with Common, he was working with Erica Badu, he was working with Q-Tip, ODB, um, D'Angelo, like, just... All of those influential rap R&B artists from the 1990s and early 2000s, like, you name it, they, like, he has, has probably done something in, in their world. So that's, that's Jay Dilla in a nutshell. Um, there is more. Um, well, how, how do you feel about his, his own work, for like his solo work? I love it. I absolutely, like Donuts is like up there as like you know one of the albums. Yeah, it is as one like if particularly if you have like a record collection, it's like you must buy this one. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. Um, I was doing some research in this and I found someone else who actually is a big fan of that particular record, and it is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers that he loved. And I listened to this record, this rough draft, um, this rough draft record. And I just, I was in Big Sur by myself, and I was like, had it in headphones, and I was walking around on these trails through the mountains, just listening to it, and I just like, touched this thing in me so deeply, I remember I just couldn't stop crying, it was so powerful, like, I really love this a lot, like, um, some people just have the ability to touch you, you know, and he does. Jesus, like he's crying on camera. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to watch. But like that's how transcendent Dilla was. Like he, you know, he uh, gained so much attention from so many people, and unfortunately, um, met a very premature end. In only, only thirty two. He was thirty two. Yeah, he had a rare blood disease and lupus. Um, the rare blood disease has a name. It's very, very long. I didn't want to put myself under the stress trying to pronounce it on mic but um, he died three days after Donuts was released that is like that's that's like Bowie putting out his last album yeah if it was very much a similar situation where he had finished the record on his deathbed um, and he gave us Donuts and that's what he left us with and it, it's thought that like there's hundreds of unreleased 
Dillabeats out there belonging to the estate. And I will say um, some stuff that has happened since. I know I'm not going into a deep, rich history here um, on Dilla, but like he's just, he's so, so important um, when it comes to hip hop and when it comes to sampling, like even when it comes to dance music, the way he like, the way he samples has no doubt influenced people like Fred again. And Kanye West has, has been very vocal about Dilla's influence on him and how he they made records together. Um like it's just it's absolutely incredible what what as producer as well and again uh, people might not know this but you can get his entire drum library on splice which is a sample platform a sample um, platform that you pay for it's a subscription service you get access to samples every month and there are there is a j dilla pack and it is phenomenal i use it all the time um really really good stuff in there um I could go into his discography, like, it's amazing. I just, I I think I'd spend far too long on it, to be honest. Um, It's just, like, uh, uh, just to describe the genius quickly, there's a great YouTube YouTube channel called Tracklib, which, again, Tracklib is another website dedicated to, um, you know, samples. And again, they're like royalty-free samples. You pay for the the service and you can have the samples for free. You can use them in your music. Um, But Tracklib do these great things called sample breakdowns. And they did one on Don't Cry, which you heard, um, which you heard there. Um, now there is visual cues on this, so I would highly recommend that you go and look at it on YouTube. Search Don't Cry Sample Breakdown. It'll be the first thing that comes up. But um, yeah, just to kind of present to you what the sample sounded like in before Dilla got to it, and then the process of him actually creating this brand new thing with a with a sample album, and perhaps one of the most impressive beats on the album from a sampling perspective is Donut's 18th track, Don't Cry. Let's take a closer look. Dilla is essentially deconstructing the record with surgical precision at different points along the entire original composition. Instead of looking at a certain loop or section of the record, he's zooming out and looking at the entire record as a canvas. same way a painter spends time crafting their palette of colors to paint with, Dilla extracts portions of the sample along the entire timeline to piece back together like a puzzle. It's this puzzle method that makes this track so unique. The other special part about this track is how Dilla manipulates the chops to form his own tempo and groove. The sample is slower than Dilla's final track. means that normally, if you picked anything other than eighth notes, your chops would sound out of sync since all the drums would be hitting too late. But because he does eighth note chops, he's forcing the sample to adhere to his new speed. So the kick and snare now hit where they're supposed to, and the added bonus to this is that everything after each kick and snare hits just a little bit late. By doing this and not resorting to quarter note chops, he's more able to finely tune the groove and tempo. Also, by focusing on eighth note chops, he's able to make the puzzle pieces connect quicker, creating intrigue as the chops and textures jump in pitch and melody between one another. So yeah, like uh, a couple of immediate takeaways from that clip. One, 
very grateful and glad that uh, this was the week that Adam hooked me up with some headphones while we were recording. <laughs> you got that in HD? Because to hear that in, you know, panning across that way and everything, it was genuinely dreamlike. It's like that, it, like I was saying to you there, just off mic, that get, I was getting goosebumps just listening yeah. to it. I turned to you and I was like, beautiful. And it's, just like... It's, it's like what he did was just so mind bending and groundbreaking and like even you heard there like that's that's definitely one for the music nerds by the well, way this thing, like, the second thing I want to say is that like I, while listening to that clip that very uh, forensic deconstruction I was just like oh boy I mean like I do not have the brain for this at all and it's quite clear to me that only a few people in the world do mm. and then can do something with it uh, I was back in maths class for a second there, and with all due respect to my late father, uh, you know, he knew I was not good at maths. <laughs> That's another thing. People would always be like, you know, uh, why are you so bad at maths? Your dad's a maths teacher. And I'd be like, well, he's also a different person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how that works. Well, he didn't teach me maths. He actually did teach okay. me maths. <laughs> he fucking did for years. Like, and boy, did I, yeah, he, he wasn't, uh, yeah, wasn't happy. Yeah, well, you know what? I think... Love you, Dad. I think we can all be happy that... Dilla was great at maths and like I, I'm very very grateful for his work as a producer being able to just like get inside his mind via li- listening to his music is such a it's a, it's genuinely an honour like it is and the fact that his music is there and he didn't hold on to it and it's such a shame that he passed away so young because who knows what like what we would have now but like he's he's influenced acts like Kendrick Lamar he's influenced time, yeah. like he influenced a lot of people in the New York scene look at Nas you look at any of those guys you look at the people who came after him you look at Timbaland you look at Missy Elliott you look at like all of these people who have taken similar roads to their creations and how they've managed to like make their way and I think they all have Dilla to thank for it before we close the door on Dilla for now um, and get to you number one what was again what was the categorization for him here I I, I, I think he is a, like again a bit of a dictator in terms of the fact that like you can always tell what beat is a Dilla beat you really can like there's just something the visionary there's a there's yeah a visionary very much a visionary very much a tastemaker um, the architect I'm just throwing words out yeah but like <laughs> I mean they're all correct because like it seems like any of the artists that got on top of his work and got on got to sit on those beats and rap on those beats made a great success out of it you mm-hmm. look at Common's comeback record it was received so well critically entirely Dilla Beats Erica Badu's stuff that like you heard Don't You Know there that's like probably one of her mo- most well known songs it's a Dilla production Um I, I mean, you like I said, I could day, go on all day, but, we won't. but I uh, won't. I won't. Great choice, though, obviously. And well, if that's not your number one producer who is not named Rick Rubin, who is it? So, it's not one person. Oh, come on. With two people. <laughs> right. Never, never felt before. Felt before. Come on. Come on. 
from ghetto to ghetto, the backyard to yard, I sell it. Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo, also known as the, the Neptunes. Neptunes. It couldn't be anyone else. I don't think. Okay, why couldn't it be anyone else? And that's not a dig. I'm just curious as to why 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 are they in that stratosphere for you? And again, give me your categorization, please. Okay, my categorization here is probably um it's tastemaker status, I think. It's like you touch this, you turn like anyone comes near the Neptunes, oh my god, number one. <laughs> like it's it's phenomenal at the 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 reach that they had. Um the first record they ended up working on was like so so just a bit of a background on them. They um Caught the eye of Teddy Riley, who's like the father of New Jack Swing. Um, New Jack Swing being a, like kind of a subgenre of R and B from like the nineteen eighties. I feel like Boys to Men are in that. Boys to Men, yeah. Um, LL Cool J had a little bit of it going on in his early stuff. Um, there is definitely better examples. I can't think of them right now, but um, th- he caught their eye at, at, at a talent show in nineteen ninety two, which is when um, Chad Hugo and Pharrell Williams had founded the Neptunes. Pharrell being a drummer, Chad being a saxophonist. Um, through working with Riley, the Neptunes wrote Rec, Rec X and Effects. It's a hard one to say. Um, 1992 song Rump Shaker, while still, in, while still in school, they wrote this song. It was a massive, massive hit. Um, they also worked with Riley's group Blackstreet, co-writing the single Tonight's the Night from their self-titled debut album. Yeah, Blackstreet are down here on my list of uh, New, Jack Swing, New Jack Swing, along with Boys to Men, Color Me Bad, Heavy D and the Boys, Jodeci, loads of others, uh, yeah. and lots of different artists like, you know, fucking Paula Abdul, Mary J. Blige, Tony Braxton, Bobby Brown. Yep. Aretha Franklin is down here as well. Yeah, um, yeah, later stuff, yeah, it would have been. Yeah. Johnny Gill, who has an incredible song called Rub Me the Right Way. <laughs> Don't want to know. Don't video, know, Dave. The video is outrageous. <laughs> don't want to know. Probably banned from YouTube. Uh, no, no, it's not. It's it's, it's uh, sorry, sorry. Rub you the right way. I okay, say, but, but it's uh, which is slightly different. But um, <laughs> if I please, it's quite the genre, basically. <laughs> yeah, it, it yeah, a very acquired taste, I think. Um, Any but, chance to to shout out boys to men on this podcast, I will take. Well, they're fantastic. I just think New Jack Swing is maybe mildly egregious to the ears. Do you think so? I do. It's extremely eccentric. I feel. It's just, yeah, I can see the Dayglow tracksuits. I can see it. I can see the people in the like parachute pants. I can see I can see it all. Um, but anyway, let's go back to the Neptunes. Um, in 1998, Neptunes produced New York City-based rapper Noriega's single Super Thug. And they also produ- produced All Dirty Bastards' 1999 single Got Your Money featuring singer Khalees, for whom they would entirely produce her debut solo album Kaleidoscope, released in 1999, and her 2001 album Wonderland. Um, they had four Grammys from 12 nominations, became very highly sought after after um, after their kind of success with Khalees and with Teddy Riley, that kind of world. Um, and they ended up working with Justin Timberlake after his departure from NSYNC in his solo career. And you heard, um, you would have heard Rock Your Body there at the start. That was uh, Neptune's production. And you can tell, you can tell. It's drenched in Chad Hugo and Pharrell. And I hated it at the time. At really? the time I hated it. But Reappraisal? I mean, no, yeah, definitely. But also, I should say as well, uh, I, I associated with a strange time in my life. Oh, okay, I was in a, I was in like a, like a, a psychiatric hospital. Oh well, and it was always on the TV. I feel like you've told me this. Yeah, no, it's true. And it was like that was on the TV, and so was Girls Aloud. No good advice. That's the one which you I, have mentioned, which before. I preferred. Yes, and I just found Rock Your Body really annoying. And obviously, obviously, guys, I wasn't in a great headspace at the time. Yeah. 
So, you know, it took me a while. Oh, J- JT, thumbs up now? Oh, generally, I mean, like, mm, that's interesting. JT, first album, thumbs up now? Well, real quick digression here, because when Adam um, uh, very graciously picked me up from the Lewis station today, which I only <laughs> realised was the thing a few weeks ago, I was like, because I'm red line man for life, apparently. But on the green line, they have Lewis stations, apparently. Yeah, so, like, at least one. You know, the proper stations. Anyway, I, I was listening to Mirrors by Justin Timberlake when uh, Adam picked me up, uh, and I was like, I have to put off this wonderful song. Um, I think Timberlake has some very good stuff, but has... Uh, devolved horrendously I think he has Pharrell and Chad Hugo to thank for his entire career yeah what about well hang on Timbaland hello well excuse me yes that album is drenched in West Beach Virginia Mm -hmm. like what was happening what was in the war there because you had like you <laughs> my had... love is maybe the best pop song of all time yeah yeah yeah. apart from you know be my baby and the actual classics but yeah like, yeah the, real the cla- modern, modern classic modern classic i think my love is unfucking believable i think what like what timberland uh missy elliott because she was involved i believe in some of the stuff um uh chad hugo and pharrell brought to the table was just like it was so groundbreaking at the time because now like it wasn't R and B, it wasn't it wasn't rap music, it wasn't hip hop really. It was like a little bit of a hybrid of all three. There's some punk in there as well. It's not surprising that you mentioned that he's a drummer. Yeah, and like that again, so look, like the Neptune stuff is so rhythmic, but like also or like any very specific any or D is very like rock exactly, focused as well. That's exactly what I'm thinking. Very like yeah. skate, like skate rock mixed with rap, mixed with R and B, mixed with groove, mixed with everything. Like there's like it, there's so much in there. It's just like I I would be afraid to step inside for Alan Chad's mind because like. <laughs> For I'm I fear I may get lost to never return. Well, let me uh, let me bring this back to the man that we're not allowed to talk about. Obviously, Rick Rubin yes is on Ninety Nine Problems by Jay Z. He is. But do we think that there's a Neptune's influence in there as well, or am I going crazy and just trying to link a red twine conspiracy wall? Because I'm thinking of that any or D thing. I'm thinking of that kind of you know serrated edge. I of pop meets punk meets rap meets hip hop. No, of course, no. I see it what you been mean. Done before. I see we, what you like, mean. Like you know, fucking we go back to Run DMC and whatever. Beastie Boys, like, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's not a brand new concept, but just in terms of that time period. Yeah, I think. I'm probably reaching. I I don't think it's. I don't think what you're saying is untrue. I think it was more influenced by Rick Rubin and the Beastie Boys. Sure. Um, but I do think that that then probably influenced N.E.R.D. Well, that's let, yeah. Let's bring it back to the Neptunes. Yeah. So. Um, like I said, they spent a lot of time with and Justin Timberlake in the studio. That album, Justified, the first album Justin Timberlake did out on his own, won a Grammy for Best Pop Album um, in 2004. And I have a little clip of the Neptunes and Justin Timberlake in the studio. That was it. That I mean, like that. You can hear they're kind of like obviously with the benefit of hindsight, we're able to see like, yeah, that's definitely "Rock Your Body" by Justin Timberlake, produced by the Neptunes. But like, that's them. There's actual footage. There's lots of footage readily available of those studio sessions um, of Justin Timberlake working on "Justified" with the Neptunes in the studio. And 
that's one of them where they're kind of like scatting through it and they're looking to see like where the vocal melodies are, what the kind of rough lyrics might be. You hear that there's a melody that's kind of like a little bit of a deviation from the actual final product. Um, there's a great one of them working on the bridge, which I couldn't get my hands on. Um, I've seen it before though, where they're like trying to figure out the bridge and like vocally, they're like working it all out together and there's like the overlapping vocal and stuff. It's really, really amazing. Um, one thing I will say about the Neptunes is obviously we all know Pharrell, that fella's had uh, some career, you know, like he's done, he's done everything. Like he's had, like he's been, he's fronted NERD. I suppose he's, de facto fronted the Neptunes um, but I think that like Chad Hugo doesn't get enough credit mm-hmm. um, I think that's a bit of a topic of uh, that's like a f- common topic of conversation in um, in the music industry but not from the perspective of Pharrell and I have a clip to demonstrate how would you describe what each of you bring to this well he's a savant He's a genius. Yeah. He's a genius. And, and, and. He's a vault. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no. I'm just an aunt. I'm just an ant. The last three letters of that word. Pharrell has always been the front man. Chad is mostly silent partner. But I learned so much from this guy. This guy, he, he's the one mm-hmm. to me. What like did he teach you? Like he showed me like how to play the chords that I really liked. Yeah. You know, but he's literally the guy that like can pick up any instrument uh, and play anything. And vocals and lyrics and chords and yeah, musical arrangements. Yeah, this guy. You heard there, like Pharrell is obviously very forthcoming about the impact that Chad Hugo had, and I think it's like kind of undoubtable. Like you even look back to if you, there's like a lot of. Um, there's a lot of reading material and listening material out there on the Neptunes themselves. So like I would encourage you to, you know, if you're a bit of a production head or you just want to kind of find out more about, you know, the the naissance of the Neptunes, like just search them on YouTube. There's a, there's full documentaries made by great YouTubers out there. Um, I had the pleasure of listening to those during my research. Like the story is, it, it they have a story past and... Uh, again, they're, like it's playing into the future. Like Chad Hugo's not doing a whole lot of stuff right now. Um, Pharrell, I don't think he's doing a whole lot of stuff right now. He's popping up at Formula One races every now and again, which I've seen. What a treat! Um, him and Lewis Hamilton, great friends. Yeah, Pharrell is like a verb. Like he's he's just like he's his own thing. Very much so, and like he will be, he will always be there. And I guarantee you, we won't be expecting it, and we'll have another happy, or we'll have another drop it like I don't want another happy, or. Uh, I think we'll do you get like it. that song? No, I don't. Okay, okay, but I think like it's like. Do you know what I mean? It's like trouble it, like it's hot. Like I would never adore it, but it's better than happy. Snoop Dogg's first number one ever. Wow, it was All always ca- on the TV when I worked in Extravision. It, it was, was always on, and again it, because of Chad Hugo was made up entirely of that one drum and some clicks, like mouth clicks, <laughs> and a spra- and a spray can. Yeah, <laughs> and a spray can that's what you hear that's what you hear in the background it's a spray can he pans it all around if you actually go in and listen to that just by itself there's a great isolated bit of it at the very end of the song if you want to listen on Spotify um, just listen to the beat it's so minimalist how they manage to do that with so little is is like absolutely beyond me like artists they've worked with like you heard clips there I th- that's responsible I think directly for Pusha T's success um, you know following on from that so I think we have the Neptunes to thank yeah, clips are um, 
you've got Gwen Stefani's comeback, Britney Spears' Slave for You. That was the Neptunes, of course it was. You listen to it, it sounds exactly like the Neptunes. Mm-hmm. You got Justin Timberlake. Um, Robin Thicke was, a, we didn't, I know, but like, you know, they're responsible for him. Did they do Blurred Lines? They, I don't know, I don't know if they did Blurred, I don't know if they did it, I didn't look into it because I I couldn't be, I don't want to, I couldn't distance myself far enough away from that song, (laughs) but um, they had signed uh, him to their label originally, can't remember the name of it, it had something to do with Neptune's planets, something like that. Um, I have done research, I promise, but they also had, before she signed to Good Music, Tiana Taylor as well. Okay. Um, So, they had like again the Neptunes a little bit of everything they kind of they had they did a lot of writing as did Max Martin you know they were very involved in lyrics they were very involved in melodies um but as far as the number one goes I think yeah it was between them and Dilla I think it's probably close cut for number one I think my reverence for Dilla definitely is number one but I think in the grand scheme of things the Neptunes are a bit more widely known and their work is more widely known but that is part one <laughs> and my top five producers who are not Rick Rubin now I will say part two there is I, like, next year yeah okay we'll see let's let's figure it out yeah. <laughs> let's work out the details um, but yeah there's like so many I omitted like I, I, I had debated I, I will throw a couple of names in here I debated Sophie for a little while I think Sophie is, is, you know is was really groundbreaking in her own right I just think I kind of wanted to be a bit more broad in in this particular instance. Mm-hmm. Um, I nearly d- picked Timbaland, but I think Dilla had influenced Timbaland and then uh, inf- I think they like had influenced Timbaland and the Neptunes and it kind of went from there. So I tried to go back to ground zero. Um, you nearly picked Jack Antonoff, of course. I couldn't. No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, no, not into Jack Antonoff. Uh, Aaron Who? Dessner was on the table for a little while. Who's the, there's a producer that you can't stand like a rock producer. Maybe he's worked with the Foo Fighters or something. There's someone Oh, who- Greg Kirsten. Yeah, I he was very close to making the top five, Dave. He was very close. Oh, was he? He's like I, I think you I are need, a fan. I need to as Brian <laughs> as Brian Lloyd said, I need to put childish things aside. Okay. And think about their the kind of broad influence on the industry. Sure, sure. And I, I think that Greg Kirsten has had an like you know, he produced Hello um by Adele. He's had a like I looked at his discography. I can't think of it now, but I was genuinely astounded by how many songs I knew on there. Okay. Um, I, I do think, I mean, I wonder if it's one for the future, but like, it might be a bit mean, but I wouldn't mind doing top five worst producers. Oh, that I could do. Yeah. But I, again, that would down, be down to my personal taste. And are we punching down? I, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. But for now, yeah, more honorable mentions um, that didn't make this list. Yeah, no. I had a few Paul Epworth. Definitely. Don't spoil, don't spoil the part two. When Mention, we no, I won't spoil part two. I just won't get, I won't get too deep into it. Paul Epworth was one I came close to. Again, um, bit of a modern contemporary hasn't quite had the influence of the ones I mentioned and um, there are a few from the past that um you know back in kind of the 70s 80s that I did want to talk to Linda Perry was very close um and Missy Elliott as well but again I with the whole Dilla thing I went back to ground zero there I wanted to try and see who was the the archetype for all of sure. all of that so yeah um look it's a I could go on for days about amazing amazing producers and their influence on the world but this is just like a, a selected discography shall we say yeah yeah for sure and I really do appreciate it and of course you know keeping this show gorgeously arranged as always is Sonic Architect Adam and that's has, me everybody has gifted us with this top five this week well thanks for listening um, thanks, thanks for doing it man thanks for indulging me oh, of course I, it's, it's quite literally the least I could do 
and I enjoyed it. And I'm I, glad you enjoyed and it. I, I love that you had like, you know, different kind of characters, like it was a, a role-playing game or something. Yeah, I think um, that was fun. Like, Because in I, many ways, Adam, the ultimate RPG is going to the studio and getting an album. I thought you were going to say life. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's what I should have said. That's the what ultimate I RPG. Have said. I said that in work life. the other day. It was like somebody was like, someone said something, but you know, it was like, you know, they mentioned like a big screen and I and I said, well, I said, aren't we all just looking at a big screen? A big screen yeah, of life. Big screen of life. <laughs> <laughs> Phenomenal work. hilarious. Work with me, guys. Phenomenal work. Phenomenal work. Yeah, no, that, look, I really, really enjoyed doing it. It was definitely like, I, I, I made a labour out of it, to be honest, but I'm glad I did because I learned a lot more about the producers. He was late picking me up, listener. Well, listen, I I put that down to traffic, but (laughs) I I did cut a clip when we got back to the studio. It's true. Um, Never not on, never not working. Listen, I'm pulling the curtain back. This is before the Encore X No Encore exclusive. Let's wrap it up, though. Um, This was very, very fun. And thank you. You're very welcome. I greatly appreciate it. Again, like I said, thanks for indulging me. Something a bit different, you know. And again, an education and pretty much flawless in terms of selections. In terms of the music that we heard... Can't argue with that, Adam. Won't argue with I it. I think it's pretty bulletproof, I will say. It is pretty bulletproof. But yeah. for now, uh, that is no encore for this week. This has been no encore. There will be no encore. And we're back next week, probably probably back in the usual rotation. Uh, we do have a lot of guests booked up for the next little while. And uh, uh, you'll find out who they are when they're on the show. <laughs> My name is Dave Hanratty. <laughs> His name is Sonic Architect Adam. And this was a no encore production. Goodbye. Goodbye.